Support for WAMU comes from the Alliance of Community Health Plans, the voice of the nation's nonprofit health plans, champions of the leading health choice for seniors, Medicare Advantage. Learn more at achp.org. Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast, Radio Theater from WAMU 88.5. Hi, everybody. I'm Murray Horwitz. Autumn arrives this week, and with it, our fall membership campaign, which, as always, gives us a chance to share some choice radio bits we don't often get to play, like a couple of episodes of The Adventures of Superman, a little Bob and Ray, and some other surprises. Gunsmoke, Dragnet, and America's Fabulous Freelance Insurance Investigator are all on hand, as is co-producer Jill Arold Bailey and our colleague Douglas Bell. And we've got an Ellery Queen mystery for you from the Ford Theater. That's not the real-life theater in downtown D.C. It's the imaginary radio one. So relax, forget about anything that worried you last week, Don't think about what may worry you next week, and instead, get ready to imagine that theater and much more here on your Sunday Night Oasis, The Big Broadcast. Yes, it's our fall membership campaign, and we love these evenings, not only because of the programs I just mentioned, but also because we get to hear from you directly. In fact, why don't you get in touch right now and start us off with a call to 800-248-8850, 800-248-8850, or go to wamu.org and click on the beating heart. Tonight's your only chance during the big broadcast to show your support for our show and for the station that keeps us on the air. Do it now, because you don't want to miss this particular adventure of the man with the action-packed expense account. We've been listening to Edmund O'Brien in that role over the past few weeks, and this will be the last of our visits with him for the time being, as we move on to his successor, John Lund, and then everybody's favorite, Bob Bailey. For now, thanks for calling or clicking, and here's the first part of the adventure called The Lucky Costa Matter from August 15, 1951, CBS, and yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Edmund O'Brien as... Johnny Dollar. Johnny, this is Louise Costa. Oh, Louise. Say, that's funny. I was thinking of you and Lucky just this morning. Were you? Yeah, how are you? I don't know, Johnny. That's why I called you. What's the matter, Louise? Something about Lucky? I don't know. Maybe it's me. Maybe I'm getting tired of being a detective's wife. Hey, wait a minute. That doesn't sound like you. I know, but something's wrong. He's been on a case and he had to go to San Francisco, or at least that's what he told me. I haven't had one word, not even a postcard in a week. That doesn't sound like Lucky. Maybe he's in trouble. The divorce case, Johnny. Could I talk to you about it? Maybe I'm all wrong, but I'd like to know. Yeah, sure, Louise. I'll be over in about an hour, if that's all right. The makers of Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum bring you Edmund O'Brien in another adventure of the man with the action-packed expense account, 
America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. The following is an accounting of expenditures during my investigation of the Lucky Costa matter. His real name was Frank Costa. I don't know where he'd picked up the lucky tag, but he'd had it five years ago when both of us were on the payroll of one of the big detective agencies. He opened his own office at about the same time I went into insurance. I got to know him and his wife well, but not intimately, and I liked them both. So when she phoned with worry in her voice, I went over to see her. In a way, I wish I hadn't. Well, you don't have to talk about anything you don't want to, Louise. Why don't we go to dinner and a movie and forget the detective racket for a while? That doesn't work. I've tried it. Johnny, it's not only this week that I haven't heard from him. Lucky's changed. How? Well, it's nothing I can explain to you. If you'd seen him every day, you probably wouldn't have noticed anything but something that a wife could see. thing with his eyes when he didn't know I was looking at him. Far away, as if he was thinking of something that I didn't have any business knowing about. And... You know Lucky's never been like that. Well, I guess any man keeps secrets when it's his job to. Well, Lucky never has with me. He didn't need to. As far as his job went, he's always told me that it did him good to come home and talk things over with me. Even things he really wasn't supposed to talk about. It hasn't been that. You think he's mixed up with another woman, don't you? It started over a month ago, Johnny. I've been used to Lucky being away. You know that. Yeah, I guess you'd have to be. But like I said, I... I knew when things got different, when... Well, when it was more than just being away from me. You sure you aren't imagining things? I'm not imagining, but I haven't heard from him in all this time. That never happened before. Mm. How long has this been going on, this change you speak of? I tried to remember exactly when I first noticed it. I, I think it was one night about a month ago. I asked him what he was thinking about, and he sort of came to and said something that I don't remember now. Did you press it any further? A couple of times, and then I didn't anymore. Because it made me think he was hiding something from me, and I didn't want to think that. I kept telling myself that everything was all right. But now I know it wasn't. Was he on a case a month ago? Well, he was tracing some phonies. It doesn't have anything to do with work, Johnny. I know that. He'd traced phonies before. He'd done everything before. It wasn't work. Well, I don't have a wife's viewpoint, but I know Lucky pretty well. Some things about him I know better than you do. It seems to me that if he was going to go wrong with a woman, he'd have done it a long time ago. We met some, you know. Yes, I've heard. Does his brother still live here in town? Yes, but I haven't phoned him. Same address on board, wasn't it? Yeah. Are you going to see him? Yeah, I thought I might. You want me to check on Lucky, don't you? I don't know what I want. Yes, I want to find out. All right. I think his brother is the best place to start. The last time I'd been at the Broad Street address had been for the funeral of the Costa's mother. The house was a few years more beat up than it had been. Some old chicken coops stood empty in the backyard, and Joe, the brother, pulled up in an old car after I'd thumbed the doorbell three or four times and had started to leave. I took the wife and kids over to the park. So I could have some peace for an hour or so. Yeah, I almost missed you. I'm glad you didn't, Johnny. It's been a long time. 
How things been going with you? Fragile. You? Ah, uh, guy can make a living. But making it go far enough is another story. Hey, come in the house. Sure, thanks. I'm working over at Bricker's now. It's a better spot in the old job. Had one raise already and got another one coming up. Man, that sounds good, Jim. You still doing the same thing? Yeah, still following people. You, uh, see much of Lucky anymore? No, no, not for six months anyway. As a matter of fact, I came here to talk to you about him. Yeah? What about him? Well, I wondered if you'd spoken to him before he left for San Francisco last week. No. I talked to Lucky for the last time, as far as I'm concerned. That was about a month ago. What's the matter? Thought you two were okay, that you got along all right. You're a pretty good friend of his, aren't you, Johnny? Well, you know how it was. He and I just fell together when we were with the agency. Yeah, we're good friends. Maybe I see him only twice a year, but he's almost the only guy I've held on to. Did he ever tell you about his first wife? He was married before? Yeah. Did he ever tell you about the year and six he spent in prison? Joe, are you serious? Yeah. That's the way lucky he is. He don't let his friends know anything about him that he don't want them to know. He's always been like that. There's always been two sides to Joe. One that you know about and one that you don't. What about this prison term? It was grand theft. It was over this girl that he married, his first wife. He stole some furs for her. How long ago? Twelve, fifteen years, I guess. Well, we're still living in Brooklyn. Lucky was a wild kid when he was 18 or so, and he still got some of it in him. Who was this woman he married? Her name was Hazel Mackey, and she called me about getting in touch with Lucky. Oh? When? That was about a month ago. That's when him and me had our showdown. I told him he was a dumb cluck if he saw Hazel again. I said, you got a new wife now. You're amounting to something. You're married to a nice kid. But I could tell I wasn't getting to him. He was going to see her. I knew that. So I told him if he did, it was the end of him and me, brother or no brother. You're sure he saw her? Well, before he left that he would. She had some kind of a hold on him back when they were married. And she still got it. What do you want with Lucky, Johnny? Louise called me. She hasn't heard from him in a week, and she wants to know what goes. He's dropped out of sight. Sure he has. I knew he would. Where can I find this Hazel? New York. She's got an apartment on 82nd. You got the number? Uh, yeah. Come on in the other room. I'll get it for you. Hazel Mackey? Yeah. Who are you? My name is Dollar. I'm a friend of Lucky Costas. Oh, come on in. Thanks. You know where Lucky is? Not at the moment, no. Who are you? I told you. He's been missing for a week. His family is worried. I'm looking for him. He's on a case. Is he working for you? Yes. What kind of a case? I don't know that it's any of your business. I need a detective, so I hired him. Is that all right? It would be if he were on the up and up about it, but he isn't. As far as his wife knows, he's in San Francisco on a divorce case. I can't help what he tells his wife. How did you get here? His brother told me about you. I guess his wife doesn't know. I guess that's why he told her he was going to San Francisco. You know where I can reach him? No, not for a while. Do you think I ought to send his wife to the police? I don't see why you should. I will if I don't find out about the case he's on. Hey, what's with this pressure stuff? What's the case? I needed a bodyguard. What for? I was engaged to a guy who was sent to prison. He was there two years, and I, I changed my mind about him. He's out now, and I'm afraid of him. Who is he? You know I don't like you. you got a lot of nerve. None of this is any of your business. I wish you were right. 
But I've already stuck my neck out and made it my business. So if I don't find out these things from you, I'll find them out from someone else. Yeah, I guess you would. His name is George Myers. What makes you think he's going to cause you any trouble? Some of the things he told me when I went to visit him. It's hard to talk sense to a man who's been in prison that long. I tried to tell him how I felt, but he's slow as top and make a lot of threats. Where is he now? I don't know. Been out a week. Lucky's trying to get a line on him. He hasn't contacted you yet? No, but he will. When it's over with and we get things straightened out, why, then Lucky can go back to his wife. Now, if you approve, I'd just as soon you'd get out of here. Well, a few things don't figure. You answered the doorbuzzer, not like a dame that's afraid of someone coming, but I suppose you're right. It's Lucky's business how he earns his money. Now, tell him you dropped in. It's up to you. Good night. So long. put off telling his wife for two days because I didn't know how and because I didn't think it was up to me to tell a thing she never knew about her husband. But on the third morning, it broke. The story made page one, part two of all the New York dailies. The body of ex-convict George Myers had been found the night before. He'd been shot to death by what they called an unknown assailant. I phoned the brother, Joe Costa, and met him outside Bricker's during his lunch hour. Hi, Johnny. What's up? Well, maybe the local papers didn't carry it here. This one. What about it? Who's this Myers? Friend of Hazel Mackey's. She told me she hired Lucky to bodyguard her against this Myers. Holy. You mean Lucky killed him? I don't know, Joe. But it looks bad. Yeah. Read this last paragraph. Myers went to prison on a robbery rap, but the money was never recovered. There's $200,000 floating around, Joe. I can't help wondering if this Mackey woman hadn't her finger on it. Why do you have to tell me this, Johnny? Because I couldn't carry it myself. I talked to Hazel. What she told me put the finger on Lucky. I wanted you to know because I'm going to have to go to the police with it. This is going to kill Louise. You know that. What can I do, Joe? Well, it seems to me you could stop playing hero. Now, wait, Joe. You don't have to run to the police. If Lucky did it, let them find out. You don't have to tell Joe. them. Not for that no good Lucky, but Joe, hey, Joe, listen to me. If they get to Hazel Mackey and she tells them about talking to me, then what happens? Then I'm in trouble. I can't afford that, Joe. I've got to stay clean with the police. Sure, stay clean, no matter what it does to Louise. That's the way it is, then. Huh? I didn't ask to get mixed up in it. I didn't tell Louise what I found out about him, but it's out of hand now, Joe, and there's nothing I can do. Go ahead, then. Go ahead. Maybe some nice fat cop will pat you on the back. Joe! Joe! Ah, a sour racket. Leaving us hanging in a Yours Truly Johnny Dollar episode, The Lucky Costa Matter, from the summer of 1951. You won't be hanging on for long, though. We'll hear the conclusion of tonight's adventure in just a few minutes here on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. We're in our fall membership campaign. I'm Murray Horwitz, and with me is our co-producer, Jill Arold Bailey. Hello, Jill. Hi, Murray. 
Our friend Douglas Bell is here, and we'll hear from him soon. But right now, we're urging you to take advantage of this, your only opportunity to support the big broadcast during the big broadcast. Go to WAMU.org and click on the beating heart, or call 800-248-8850. Your loyalty to this unique program Yes, I said it, that overworked adjective, unique, but just bear with us for a moment. Your loyalty means so much to us, and your support means even more. It guarantees that the big broadcast, and yours truly, Johnny Dollar, and Gunsmoke, and Orson Welles, and Jack Benny, and all the other high points of vintage radio will keep coming your way on the air every Sunday night and online just about any time you want. Murray, you're right. We are unique. You know, no other major market station in the entire country with the power and reach of WAMU offers anything like the big broadcast. You can check. Um, And if we want to keep bringing you this unique program, we need to hear from members. You can call now during the show. We are hoping to hear from at least 50 members this hour. That includes if you are a um, member right now and you want to make an additional contribution or increase your monthly contribution, or if you're a new member, we want to hear from you during the show. You can call 1-800-248-8850. Again, 1-800-248-8850. Or you can go to wamu.org. You can click on Donate. And thanks in advance. And what you said about monthly is really an important point, Jill. Thanks for bringing it up and reminding me. What we're after are mostly sustaining members. I mean, any gift is welcome, of course, when you call 800-248-8850 or go to WAMU.org. But it's the sustaining members that allow us to kind of budget more easily and be more economical. And it's as easy as pie to do. Uh, we, we've got people who will help you do it when you call 800 248 8850. We've already heard from Cheryl in Manassas, Virginia. She made a gift and she says, not our favorite voice actor. And (laughs) Edmund O'Brien and his family, thank you. But we love Johnny Dollar and the big broadcast. Well, my family and I, thank you. I'm a monthly subscriber, says Cheryl. But this extra donation is to keep this program on WAMU. Cheryl, thanks so much. And as usual, there's a number of thank you gifts on offer including, back by popular demand, the Big Broadcast Mug. It's a perfect size. I'm drinking from it even as I'm speaking to you. Isn't that a trick? And it's got our stylish Big Broadcast logo. You know, you wake up in the morning, you're barely sentient, you reach in the cabinet for a mug, and there we are. You'll start the day with a pleasant memory of something you heard on the big broadcast when you become a sustaining member for just $12 a month or a one-time gift of $144. You can select the mug. It's our way of saying thank you for being part of the big broadcast family and supporting WAMU. It really is a family, isn't it? You know, every week we get together for Sunday dinner or right after Sunday dinner. I heard that one woman listens to us while she watches while she washes the dishes. And as Murray says, how long are you washing the dishes for? It's a four hour hours. show. <laughs> <laughs> but she's really enjoying the big broadcast. And and we're all sharing something together that's amazing amazing radio shows that i don't know murray there's something about them that's just so satisfying well i like that i I think it has to do with the fact that these are shows 
that respect the audience, just as everything else on WAMU. They don't insult your intelligence. They remind us that for all our differences, we're all in this together, and they give us a context for where we are today, 800-248-8850 or WAMU.org. And you decide how much that connection means to you and what you are able to give now. If you go on to WAMU.org, you click on the beating heart on the donate page, you'll, you'll see uh, many different thank you gifts there. And you know what that, what works for you. If that's $12 a month, fabulous. If that's $20 a month, fabulous. If it's that you do $5 a month and then maybe once a year you throw an extra hundred in there for a one-time gift, fabulous. You know what works for you. Let us know what works for you. Call 1-800-248-8850, 1-800-248-8850, or go online to wamu.org. We're looking for 50 members, new and renewing members this hour, and that's our goal. So please help us get there, 800-248-8850 or wamu.org. This is the big broadcast. It's where you'll hear good writing, a, a, a civility of tone, the way people talk to one another in these shows, their, their the, the humor that's not nasty, real stories with beginnings, middle and end, middles and ends. If all that means something to you, then please, we've got 10 members so far, so keep it up, folks, at 800-248-8850 or go to wamu.org, click on that beating heart that says donate. And, um, or you can give uh, online, I said, while you're listening to the conclusion of the Lucky Costa Matter from August of 1951 and the CBS series, Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. I left Hartford for New York on the 110 that afternoon. When I got there, the later editions reported the usual rounding up of known criminals who were being grilled about the Meyer shooting. And the closer I got to the apartment on 82nd Street, the rottener the whole thing looked to me. Who is... Oh. Come on, open up. All right. What do you want? Where is he now? Lucky? I don't know. I told him to give himself up, but he wouldn't. Did he kill George Myers? Yes, the stupid idiot. How did it happen? Lucky had a room over at the Montclair, and George must have followed me over there. You went across town so you could be with your bodyguard? Yes. And the man you were afraid of followed you? Yes. You were either not very bright or not very scared. Go ahead. Well, about two o'clock we came out, and... George was waiting in the lobby. He followed us out on the street and started swearing at us. He took a swing at me, and then Lucky tried to stop him. He pulled a gun out of his pocket, and that's when Lucky shot him. That all sounds very neat. What do you mean? Sit down. I've got a theory that I'll try out on you. When I get close, tell me. The $200,000 that never showed up after George Meyer's arrest... For a split of that, Lucky agreed to kill him. You're crazy. You hire a detective as a bodyguard. Theoretically, he could kill this man you were afraid of and ride out of it on his license and a self-defense plea. It was self-defense. George pulled a gun. The police didn't find it. If it was self-defense, why didn't Lucky report it like he should have? I wanted him to. We came back here and I begged him to phone the police. What about the $200,000? I don't know anything about it. You mean it'll be hard to prove that you do? I said I don't know. 
I take it you haven't phoned the police. Uh, no. I-, I know I should, but I just can't do it to Lucky. You know I'm going to call them, don't you? I thought you said you were his friend. Not that good a friend. What can they do to me? Hold you as a material witness while I try to get some proof together that you dragged Lucky into this. Dragged him into it? I hired him. I told you that. I was afraid of George, and and I hired him. And he killed Myers in line of duty ended in self-defense. Why didn't he turn himself in? I don't know. I wanted him to. He must have given some reason for not doing it. What did he say? Well, he, he said that everything was all ruined now and that he'd rather take a chance on getting away. Why was it ruined if he killed in self-defense? I've had to do it. I don't know. Were you going to help him get away? We didn't talk about that. He was like a crazy man, pacing the floor. And, and then he left about 3.30. Where was he going? He didn't say. Was he going to get in touch with you? Yes. He said he'd try to call. Well, he won't be here to take the call. I want the police to hear your story. <laughs> The officer who answered my call was Lieutenant Carl Belder. Two uniformed men who were with him took Hazel Mackey back to headquarters, and he listened to my theory. We searched the apartment without finding proof of her holding any amount like $200,000. She had a small savings account, a small checking account, and a stub showed that she had paid Lucky Costa a week in advance. We waited the rest of the afternoon for Lucky to call, and he finally did an hour or so after dark. Go ahead, Dollar. That might be him. Johnny Dollar. Who? Is this Lucky? This is Johnny Dollar. Don't hang up, Lucky. Why should I hang up? Hiya, Johnny. I'm all right, Lucky. How are you? Fine, fine. Yeah, I can imagine. What was the matter with you? I don't have the slightest idea what you're talking about. How about you explaining yourself? What are you doing in my girl's apartment? She's not lonesome. She's down visiting New York's finest. Why don't you use your head and come on in, Lucky? I like it where I am. You still figuring on trying to run out? Sure, it's worth a chance, don't you think, Johnny? If you killed Myers in self-defense, why don't you play it that way? Having this call trace, Johnny? I hope we wouldn't have to play games like that. I thought if I could talk to you, you'd come to your senses. Can I meet you someplace where we can talk it over? (laughs) No, thanks. You're a good guy, Johnny, but I think you might sell me out. You've already been sold out. What's the matter with you? You know, if positions were reversed, I'd give you a hand. I wouldn't ask you to. Anybody gets himself in a mess like you're in shouldn't expect help. Now use your head, Lucky. Let's get this over with. (laughs) Sure. Sure, I'll meet you in Times Square. New Year's Eve, Johnny. Lucky? Ah, he's gone. You know him better than I do, but uh, don't you think you pressed him a little too hard? Wouldn't he have believed you if you talked like you were going to help him? No, he knows me better than me. Well, it's a tough spot, Dollar. An old friend like that. Well, he's still in New York. He won't get out now, will he? Well, everything should be covered by now. Uh, you know him well enough to guess what he'll try? I don't think so, because a killer isn't the guy I knew. His clothes are still in the hotel room. I don't think he'll try for them now. He's got about $200 in his pocket. I don't have any idea what he'll try, Lieutenant. I guess all we can do is wait. An officer was posted at the apartment, and Lieutenant Belder and I went down to headquarters. 
Under steady questioning, Hazel Mackey held to her story that she knew nothing about any $200,000, that she'd been afraid of George Myers, that she'd hired a detective in good faith to protect her, and that after Myers had been killed, she had pleaded with Costa to give himself up. It seemed apparent to me then, after having talked with him, that she had her statement well rehearsed and felt that if she stuck to it, there was no way for us to prove anything else. I stayed in New York that night and the next, waiting for something to break. When it came, it came from Hartford. Joe Costa wanted to see me as soon as possible. Johnny? Yeah, Joe. Come on in. Oh, I got here as fast as I could. How's Louise? Not very good. Sit down. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry about blowing up the other day, it's Johnny. Right. I didn't blame you. It was a bad time for both of us. You're right, Johnny. All I could think of then was he's my brother. But now it don't make any difference. He's no better than a rat that you got a trap. There's nothing to do but stop him. You're right, Joe. I had to quit my job over him. I couldn't take it the way the boys were looking at me. They wouldn't talk to me. It'll smooth over. What do you want to talk to me about, Joe? Has he contacted you? Yeah, he phoned me. He wants for me to give him some money so he can get away. He needs more than money now. He'll never get out. What'd you tell him? Well, I told him I didn't have any to give him. And that was a time I knew for sure that you were right about him. So when he asked me again, I told him I'd see what I could do about raising some. I told him to call back tonight. I, I did that so I could sell him out to you. It was the right thing to do, no matter what you think. He wouldn't think twice about pulling you into this mess, Joe. And that's what he did. He asked you to be a party to the killing. Yeah, I know that. When is he going to call? Sometime after 7 o'clock. Does he want you to meet him? Yeah, that's right. With 200 bucks. He's going to tell me where when he calls. He's still in New York, isn't he? Yeah, Manhattan. You want me to talk to him? Yeah, if he gives himself up, I, I kind of figure they might take it easier on him. It could be. That's a deal, Joe. I'll talk to him. I'd like to see him go in by himself. Well, you uh, want a glass of wine while we wait, Johnny? Yeah, yeah, that'd be fine. This is some new stuff for my wife's folks. I took her and the kids up to their house to stay till this blows over. You'd think we were all criminals the way people treat us in this town. <laughs> About 8.30. The meeting place was a flat near the Bowery. The time was about 10 the following night. I was there at five minutes after. Hi, Lucky. What's this? Let me in. Nice place you got. You like it better than a home with a wife? Shut up. Joe sold me out, huh? He gave you a break. He didn't call the police. He sent me some money? No. Do you think you had any right to ask him to? I need some dough, Johnny. I'm running short. What about your girlfriend? You can shut up about that, too. A double cross, Lucky, huh? Yeah. Yeah, a double cross. A real good one. 
I got no beef coming. You gonna let Hazel get away with it? It's not worth a murder rap to square with her. You know who set up the double cross for Who? You did, Johnny. You stumbled into this thing and set it up for her. Maybe she'll send me a gold watch. I saw her three days before you killed him, Lucky. If you knew I stumbled in, why didn't you pull out? She didn't tell me about you until after I killed him. Oh, that's the way it went. Yeah. One little thing Hazel forgot. And she hoped it wasn't important. She hadn't wanted to bother me with it. But a friend of mine acted like he was suspicious of what we were doing. All it did was blow the whole thing sky high. I was going to cop a self-defense plea, but... Were you around, sniffing out the premeditation? I didn't have a chance. That's tough, Lucky. I'm sorry it didn't work out for you. Get off, will you? I came into this with my eyes open. I know what kind of an operator she was. I'm not beefing. There was a chance to make a hundred grand, so I took the jump, so I lost. What now, Lucky? I was going to ask you. You want a drink? No, thanks. You want a drink with me, huh? Not right now, Lucky. <laughs> Afraid I'll slip you a Mickey? I wouldn't put it past you if I was in your way. And you are in my way. Aren't you, John? Everybody's in your way now, the whole world. You can't make it, Lucky. You won't get out of town. How much you got says I won't? Start making sense. You've been on the right side of enough of these things to know you're finished right now. No, I'm not. I want you to get a shirt and tie on, make yourself look halfway human, and go to headquarters with me. They may give you a break if you give yourself up. Save it. Quit talking about it. What are you going to do? I'm not sure now that Joe sold me out. I'm in a bad spot, Johnny. I know that. I'm not ready to quit yet. Joe didn't sell you out. He wanted to give you a chance to give yourself up just like I do. We're still your friends, Lucky. We can't stand by you if you won't do the right thing. Then I'll go it alone. When? What do you mean by that? What do you think I'm going to do, Lucky? Sit here with you until you get ready to leave? I sort of hope you would. It would make it easier if you did. Well, I can't. I came here to give you a break. I've made my offer. Come with me. Give yourself up. Oh, I can't do that. Well, then I'm leaving. I'm telling the first cop I see to come and get you. You're going to put a gun on me, Lucky? Yeah. I can't let you leave. Then you'll have to use it. You want me to come up a coward in front of an old friend like you? I'm sorry, Johnny. You got nothing to lose? You won't get blamed if I get out of here. I can't let you, Lucky. I'm not bluffing. I'll have to see. I'm leaving. I'll ask you once more to go with me. Don't try it, Johnny. I'll kill you if you start for the door. That's your privilege, Lucky, because you're already a killer. Johnny. Yeah? I'm telling you, don't. Johnny, I'm telling you. Johnny, I told you. Well, Dollar? He won't give up, Lieutenant. Yeah, we'll take him then. He's armed and he's drunk. But take it easy on him if you can. He could have killed me, and he didn't. I realize that the confession as set down in this report is worthless as evidence, and as far as proof goes, you are still unable to charge Hazel Mackey for her part of the conspiracy. But after Frank Costa died trying to fight his way out of the flat, 
I want to suggest that she be picked up again and grilled until she breaks. She's as guilty as he was. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Truly, Johnny Dollar brought to you by Wrigley's Spearmint Gum stars Edmund O'Brien in the title role and is written by Gil Dowd with music by Eddie Dunstetter. Edmund O'Brien can now be seen starring in the Paramount Pictures production, Warpath. Featured in tonight's cast were Virginia Gregg, Gloria Blondell, High Averback, Peter Leeds, and Sidney Miller. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar is produced and directed by Jaime Del Valle. Bob Stevenson speaking. This is the CBS Radio Network. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, The Lucky Costa Matter, starring Edmund O'Brien from the summer of 1951. Not much about what happened to Lucky's widow, or for that matter, what happened to Edmund O'Brien, the third actor in the starring role. But in just a few weeks, we'll take a great leap forward to 1955 and the Johnny Dollar episodes starring Bob Bailey, whom we'd have to call the consensus choice for the best insurance hero ever. And you can be a hero. All it takes is a call to 800-248-8850, 800-248-8850, or a quick visit to WAMU.org. There you can support the big broadcast during WAMU's fall membership campaign and make sure that Johnny Dollar's here for you every Sunday night along with Gunsmoke and Dragnet and all the other great radio shows you can't hear on the radio anywhere else. 800-248-8850. That's 800-248-8850 or wamu.org and click on the beating heart. And you know what? There, I see smiling faces in the control room. I don't know how many... Let's. I'm going to issue a challenge to you, our big broadcast family, our old-time radio-loving listeners. I think we can make 75 callers this hour, um, and I hope I'm not out on a cliff like Johnny left us at the break there. Co-producer Jill Errol Bailey is here. Jill, how are we doing? Okay, well, I think that your um, increased goal is doable. You have a, a beautiful drum roll noise, so can you, can you give us a video? So we have heard from 40 new members, oh, fabulous, new yes. and, and renewing members so far this hour. So if you are a renewing member, you called in, you came to WAMU.org. We're counting you there. You kicked in a little bit of extra. We have brought in over 4,500 raised so far this hour. So that is wonderful news. We want to keep that going because this is going to send a strong message to WAMU that the big broadcast's home is here on Sunday night with you. Keep voting with your dollars. Keep (laughs) calling 1-800-248-8850. Keep going to WAMU.org. Click on the donate button. Choose a level of giving that works for you and continue to make your voice heard. 1-800-248-8850. 
turns out occasionally I am right. <laughs> so 75 listeners this hour, 75 people calling us, new and renewing members at 800-248-8850 or wamu.org. That is an achievable goal. So please go to those places right now, 800-248-8850, wamu.org. Like, look at this. Now they're giving me information. Joseph from Frederick, Maryland. Nikki from Baltimore. Dale from Fairfax Station, Virginia. Mary from Brandywine, Maryland. Patricia from Bowie, Maryland. Thomas from Silver Spring. They all called. They voted with their dollars, as Jill says. And they made their voices heard. Apparently, I was also right about unique. Somebody said, uh, this is unique programming that you can't find anywhere else in the country. It's a powerful testament to what radio can be and a treasured pause in the swirl of my week, wrote Beth from Tacoma Park, Maryland. She said, thank you to WAMU for keeping this on the air. If you're as thankful as Beth, then please go right now to WAMU.org and click on Donate or call 800-248-8850. And we've also heard from Nancy, who has a similar sentiment. She says, the big broadcast, exclamation point. I agree with Murray. It is unique. My family knows that 7 p.m. Sundays is sacrosanct. I have a standing date with a fabulous freelance detective then, um, as do I, except I get to listen to it all through the week as well. Um, And Frank Lovejoy, also someone I love listening to, who we're going to hear later tonight. So if you enjoy these beautiful voices that we get to hear, the characters, they get to look like whatever you want them to look like in your theater of the mind, then you call 1-800-248-8850 or you go to wamu.org and click donate. And just so you'll know, as a reminder, um, the sustaining membership is what we'd love for you to opt for. It's uh, a monthly uh, amount. And, uh, for example, if you'd like the Big Broadcast mug, you can get that for a sustaining membership of $12 per month or a one-time gift of $144 or more. Um, the sustaining membership really allows us to be much more efficient and to budget properly, and it's, it's, it's the way to go. So please call now and make your sustaining membership known at 800-248-8850. Now, we always talk about how these membership campaign shows give us the chance to play some shorter pieces and serial episodes we don't always get to play on the big broadcast. And we know they're among your favorites, too. And we've got a great example right now while we're still in what we think of as the family hour, an episode of the long-running series, The Adventures of Superman. So you'll want to go faster than a speeding bullet, to your phone and dial 800-248-8850, 800-248-8850, or click on that beating heart at wamu.org. Boys and girls, your attention, please. Presenting a new exciting radio program featuring the thrilling adventures of an amazing and incredible personality. Faster than an airplane, more powerful than a locomotive, Impervious to bullets. Up in the sky. Go. It's a giant bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. And now, Superman. A being no larger than an ordinary man, but possessed of powers and abilities never before realized on Earth. Able to leap into the air an eighth of a mile at a single bound. Hurdle a 20-story building with ease. 
race a high-powered bullet to its target, lift tremendous weights and rend solid steel in his bare hands as though it were paper. Superman, a strange visitor from a distant planet, champion of the oppressed, physical marvel extraordinary, who has sworn to devote his existence on Earth to helping those in need. As our story begins, we ask you to come with us on a far journey, a journey that takes us millions of miles from the Earth, where the planet Krypton burns like a green star in the endless heavens. Here, civilization is far advanced. It has brought forth a race of supermen, men and women like ourselves, but advanced to the absolute peak of human perfection. As we near Krypton, we see high walls and gleaming turrets. We approach the magnificent Temple of Wisdom, and there in a great hall, Jor-El, Krypton's foremost man of science, is about to address a meeting of the planet's governing council. Krypton is to die, we shall die with it. 
the parting would be much too severe. Very well. Good afternoon, White Roseanne, and you members of the council. I have no time to laugh. My wife, Lara, and my infant son are dear to me. It is not my wish to stand by and see them destroyed. Laugh all of you. But a time will come, and that time is perhaps very close at hand, when you will wish you had heeded the words of Jorel. Now you think me a fool. But remember what I have said, gentlemen, when Krypton is shattered into a thousand million stars, when the glorious civilization we have built is no more, when you and your families are swept from the face of Krypton like that. Order, gentlemen. Order. You have heard Jor-El speak. Is it your wish that we devote time and money to the building of spaceships? for the transportation of Krypton's population to another planet? No! 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 no. I am sorry, Jorel. The Council has spoken. Yes, and signed the death warrants of every living thing on Krypton. Well, I have done my best to convince you. Now all that remains for me is to proceed with my own means of salvation, my own spaceship, to save the lives of those near and dear to me. As for the rest of you, may the gods have mercy on your soul. Ah, Lara, I didn't see you. I came out to take the air on the terrace. It's been terribly hot all day. Is that because we're being drawn to the sun, Jarrell? Yes. What did the council have to say about that? I... I didn't mention it. Is the model of your spaceship almost finished? Yes, yes, I just drove the last rivet. How does it look? Splendid. But will it work? Ah, that remains to be seen. If it does work, I shall immediately begin construction of another just like it, only much larger. One big enough to carry all three of us to another world. Jarrell, when will that be? Every moment that we spend waiting and wondering... Yes, I know, I know, Lara. It's been hard on all of us, and particularly hard on you. How is the boy? Sleeping, Jarrell. That quake this afternoon frightened him. But he's all right now. Can't you come in and look at him? You scarcely see him these days, what with working all hours on the spaceship model. It can't be helped, dear. I'm racing against time. Right now, I'm anxious to know whether the model will behave as I hope. How does it operate? Very simply. When all is ready, I throw this switch. That closes the circuit, and electric energy builds up pressure in the atomic generators. Then, at the final moment, the pressure forces the ship from its carrier and speeds it on its way. But where does it go? Wherever it's pointed. This one I'm directing to the planet Earth. Earth? What is that, Jarrell? A planet smaller than our own, situated on the other side of the sun. It's inhabited by a race of people similar to ourselves. Like ourselves? Well, only partly, of course, my dear. They're about the same size, but nowhere nearly as developed. Very weak and helpless, and, and with all their faculties, extremely limited. How do you mean? Well, I... I haven't time to go into detailed explanation now, Lara, but it's something like this. You know how far you step when you want to go somewhere? Practically as far as I want. Why, one step takes me to Brata's house near the fountain. Exactly. Well, down where I'm sending this spaceship, it's quite different. An Earthman steps only three feet at a time at most, and everything else is in proportion. And that's where we're going? Oh, how dreadful. My dear, which would you rather do, go to Earth and live... Or stay on Krypton and die. I'll do anything you say, Jarrell, anything. It doesn't matter to me whether we live or die as long as we're together. It's only the boy I worry about. Yes, I know. 
Oh, Lara, darling, don't worry. He'll be saved. When are you testing the spaceship model? In the morning. Just as dawn breaks, I'll send it on its way, watching its flight through a high-powered telescope to see whether it lands safely on Earth. Is Earth the only planet place we can go to, Jurel? We couldn't breathe on any other planet but the Earth. It happens to have an atmosphere similar to Krypton. I suppose you know best, Jurel. Are you coming in? It, it seems to have gotten oppressively hot. Yes, it, it has. I wonder. Lara, do you hear that? Yes, Jurel. What is it? Subterranean explosions. Do you feel the ground trembling? Yes, I do. Jurel, do you think? Lara. Lara, I'm afraid it's come. Where is the boy, Kal-El? What do you mean? Get him quickly. This is the end. Jurel, what can we do? Nothing, nothing. I'm not ready. Oh, what a fool I've been to delay. It isn't your fault, Jurel. You did all you could. If only this model were large enough, we could take a chance. Jurel, would it carry one of us safely to Earth? Oh, I think so, but... Lara, where are you going? Stay here with me. I'm getting Kal-El. If one of us can be saved, Jurel, it should be the boy. No, no, Lara, come back. If one must go, it should be you. Lara, I said, come back. Come back. Here he is, Jurel. Still asleep. Goodbye, Kalel. Please, Lara. No, Jurel, listen to me. We both stay here. Kalel goes in the spaceship. If there is a chance, Jurel, it one little chance I wanted for my son. Maybe you're right, Lara. Jurel, look. The sky. It's fiery red. The mountains. Look, the mountains are falling in. Jurel, what's happening? The end of Krypton, Lara. Just as I foretold. This is the last great quake. Jurel. Listen! Explosion! Here, quick, quick, give me the boy. Kal-El! What are you doing, Jurel? Opening the door, putting him inside. Jurel! The house is swaying! It's breaking apart! Look, Jurel! There, there, he's safe inside. Now for the switch. Stand back, Lara. Oh, Jurel, will he reach the earth? Only the gods know. But then the chance, the only chance. Stand back now, Lara. I'm going to throw the switch. Jurel, it's getting dark. I can't see. What happened? Fire. Smoke from the center of the planet. Not much time now. Oh, Michelle. Has the spaceship gone? No, no, not yet. Waiting for pressure. We may have been too late. If it doesn't work up soon, wait. Lara, it's off. It's on its way. Jurel, where are you? Here, here beside you, Lara. Listen, can you hear me? Our boy, Kalel. Our son, Lara. He's on his way. On his way to Earth. So the tiny rocket ship roars into the uncharted heavens as the mighty planet of Krypton explodes into millions of glowing fragments, glittering stars to remain forever in the night sky. Jorel and Lara, devoted parents of the tiny boy, perish in the giant quake that destroys Krypton. But what of the rocket ship? Does it reach the Earth? Does it find its mark in all the far-flung darkness of space? Remember, don't miss the next installment of Superman. Up in the sky! Look! The sun is burned! It's a plane! It's Superman! Superman is a copyrighted feature appearing in Action Comics magazine. The Adventures of Superman, the first episode ever of the radio series that ran for nearly a dozen years. That program was broadcast in February of 1940, and to give you an idea of how popular Superman was, that was less than two years after The Man of Steel had debuted in Action Comics in the spring of 1938. 
All of it came to you from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. With me is Jill Arald Bailey, our co-producer. And Jill, we have a challenge for people to call 800-248-8850 or go online to wamu.org and click on Donate. And uh, the goal is 75 new and renewing members this hour. How are we doing? Okay, we are so close. We have five minutes left to go in the hour and 67 new and renewing members so far this hour. We can taste it. It's so, so <laughs> close. Um, so Tastes please, good too, doesn't it? That's right. It tastes so good. So please call 1-800-248-8850 if you haven't done so yet. Now's your chance. If you've been waiting, it's these last four minutes now for you to go to wamu.org, click on the donate button. And keep us coming to you Sunday nights here on WAMU at 7 p.m. It starts and we get a, a luxurious four hours to relax into. Thanks to you. We hear from Carol here. She says, I am a sustaining member, but I am making an extra gift in honor of my mother, Harriet. I'm going to cry. Oh. Who listened to the big broadcast every week. Now listening, it makes me feel closer to her. Oh, my okay, gosh. Well, you have to take it now. <laughs> well, I, what I can say to Carol is, first of all, thank you, and, and what an honor, but it really speaks to the power of this medium. It, it, radio, especially vintage radio, exploited the power of the medium in ways that it doesn't always do today, and that is it's an incredibly intimate medium. It's one person talking to another person, and that accounts for, as I say, the power of radio. It, it, it can bring us all together. That's what we try to do here every Sunday night. Let us know we're all in this together, and I've got some goosebumps too. So thank you so much, Carol. If uh, you're getting goosebumps from that story or if you feel part of that family, please go right now to wamu.org, click on donate or call 800-248-8850. And you know, Carol's comment, it, it actually reminds me of several comments that we've received just over these past couple months and over these last few years um, about generations listening together. I mean, this is something we hear about a lot. It's it's one of the benefits of being a legacy show is that we are part of these families' legacies. You're part of ours. Um, we've had such a wonderful response to the Young People's Programs we've been featuring here all summer long in our first hour. We've decided to extend the idea. So if you're among those who loved hearing The Lone Ranger, The Green Hornet, Little Orphan Annie, um, Dick Tracy, and these other shows that were targeted to young listeners listening with your kids, then please go to wamu.org or call 1-800-248-8850. You know, and it helps young people, especially, I think, put the, all of us, but young people especially, to put things into context. You know, we always talk about how amazed we are at the contemporary relevance of so many of these vintage radio shows from 70 and 80 and 90 years ago. And when I listen to that Superman episode, for example, think of the, the dire warnings we hear almost daily about climate change and the extraordinary weather events that are becoming increasingly ordinary. And there was a planet blowing up in 1940 on the air. I mean, it's, it's remarkable, and it, and it does give us that context. 800-248-8850 is the number to call, 800-248-8850, or go to wamu.org. And you can... When you do so, you can join Jim from Maryland, who says, we've been sustaining members for years, but we always make it a point to make an extra contribution on Saturday and Sunday nights to express how much we cherish these special WAMU programs. 
Thank you, Murray and Jill. Thank you, Jim, for making the Sunday Night Oasis the classiest joint in the DMV. So you can join Jim. You can call 1-800-248-8850 or go to WAMU.org. You know, speaking of classy joints, I should mention something I don't think we've mentioned at all this evening. This is your last chance to enter a drawing. You don't have to give in order to be part of this drawing, but uh, there's a $500 Trader Joe's gift card. A Given their locations, it's an increasingly classy joint, and you get a $500 <laughs> Trader Joe's gift card by going to WAMU.org. Or um, for more information, you go to WAMU.org giveaways. Call, give online at WAMU.org or call 800-248-8850. The chance to enter for the Trader Joe gift card ends at midnight tonight. So don't wait. 800-248-8850. And every donation in any amount is an automatic entry in that giveaway. So when you call 1-800-248-8850 or you go on to WAMU.org and click the donate button, if you choose $12 a month and select the big broadcast mug as a thank you gift, you are automatically entered into that. If you choose $30 a month, and there are some pretty swank uh, champagne glasses on there, by the way. Ooh, the hot jazz Saturday, Saturday night Saturday champagne night show, flutes. exactly. Oh. <laughs> um, so you know what that amount is, what that works for you, what works for you. You will automatically be entered in that Trader Joe's giveaway. So call 1-800-248-8850 now. And we have a reminder coming up for you just about what this program is. But don't forget, we're just very close to that goal of 75 people calling us at 800-248-8850 or going to WAMU.org. The reminder is that this is The Big Broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Tonight, Jill Errold Bailey and Douglas Bell are our co-producers. Mike Kidd and Kenny Pirog are the audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. And I have to update you, we did hit 75 members just Woo! this moment. So Thank you, yes, everybody. If you didn't make it in our first 75, you're still part of the club. Go ahead and call. <laughs> and Murray, you mentioned something about um, context. Can you tell us about the context of our gun smoke tonight? Well, I'm glad you asked. You know, we hear so much nowadays about patriarchy and male-dominated society. I think Westerns like Gunsmoke uh, give us a real insight into the times when that male dominance was mostly taken for granted. And um, they dramatize some old notions of what it meant to be a man and a woman. And I think you'll hear what I mean as you call 800-248-8850 and we play the first part of the episode called Bringing Down Father. It was broadcast over CBS March 11th, 1956 in the series Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gunsmoke. Gunsmoke, 
starring William Conrad. The transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America. And the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. get caught in the rain last night, Matt? I never left the office, Doc. I stayed home, too. Yeah? For once. Ordinarily, bad weather brings a rash of broken legs and babies with it. All out in the country somewhere. Uh, you always told me living in the open's good for a man, Doc. I said sun is good for a man. Well, you'll get some sun next summer. And you'll complain just as hard about that. When I think I could have an office back in Baltimore. When nice, clean people come to see me. Yeah, but nobody needs you in Baltimore, Doc. They get sick there, too, don't they? Oh, I don't know. I've never been there. You've never been? You've never been there. Hello, John. You wouldn't last two days in Baltimore, Matt. No? No. People are too polite and well-mannered. Well, you teach me what it's like, Doc, but uh, some other time. Ah, there, now, you see what I mean? Yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> oh, oh, and Chester here. He could use a little refining, too. Well, now, he'll get carried away, Doc. Good morning, Mr. John. Oh, Doc. Good morning, Chester. Now, what are you doing out here, Chester? Oh, I got up early this morning. I right, saw so you could sit on the porch here and watch the street like an old man. I already swamped out the office, Mr. Dillon. Yeah, for the first time in two weeks. Maybe you ought to get up early every morning. Mm-mm. I've got too civilized for that. <laughs> Wait a minute. You didn't get up at all this morning. You were still up. Yes, sir. How much did you lose? Oh, I wasn't gambling. I was sitting talking to a little old gal I met. Kindly... Keeping her out of the rain, oh. you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's a guy. We know, don't we? Oh, yes, yes. And it sure rained a barrel last night, too, didn't it, Chester? It sure did, Doc. <laughs> who's this? Some kid. i never seen him before, Mr. Jones. Do people tell me where I can uh, find the marshal? You done found him. What's the trouble, son? My name's Gildon. Andy Gildon. Has come up from Texas with a herd. Oh, what's on your mind, Annie? There's a man been shot, Marshal. An unarmed man. What? Up the river a ways, where we're holding the cattle. The trail boss shot him this morning before it got light. We put a guard on the boss. Uh, what's the name of this outfit? They're Star M cattle, Marshal. Star M? Then Harley Burke's the trail boss. He won't be for long. Not after this. Uh, Burke's a man of temper and he's pretty rough, but he's decent. Hard to believe he'd shoot an unarmed man. Well, he did, Marshal. Is the man dead, son? He's unconscious. Has been right along. All right, let's get going, Doc.
Where is the man, Andy? He's over yonder, behind that bush. There's a lot of bush around this camp. Suppose you show me. All right. I'm going to talk to Burke, Doc. You let me know what you find, huh? I will, man. Hey, you with the marshal? Yeah, that's right. Just look at the guard they got around Burke here, Mr. Jones. Uh-huh. I set the men to hold him, Marshal. He ain't going to get away. Now, who are you? I'm Ruman, Jack Ruman. You help run this outfit? No, I'm just a rider. Someone had to take over. All right, Ruman, you can tell those men to fall back now. All right. Stand back now, you men in the laws here. Uh, hello, Burke. Marshal. Uh, tell me you shot a man. Oh, he shot him all right, Marshal. And Hodges wasn't even armed. I wasn't asking you, Ruman. You gotta hear the truth. Burke here done nothing but fight with Hodges the whole trip. On his neck about something every minute. Go on, you gotta admit it, Burke. I had no use for him. You hated him. He was lazy and no good. Of course I hated him. Burke, I've known you a good many years. You're as rough a trail boss as there is. You're rock-headed and you drive the men as hard as you do yourself. And I've seen you be downright mean about it. Could be. I sure never figured you'd shoot a man. Surprised me too, Marshal. All right, tell me what happened to him. It was raining. I'd been out with a guard. Only dry spot I could find when I come in was way over there by Hodges. I went to sleep, and he must have woke up and seen who it was. Then he come over and kicked me in the head. Hurt me bad, but somehow I got a bullet in him before I blacked out. You didn't know he was unarmed. What difference it make, Marshal? Make a lot of difference if he doesn't live. Doc here will know about that. No. Hello, Burke. Doc. Well, Doc, how is he? He's dead. Burke. I know. I know. I'll get my stuff together and come with you, Marshal. Who's going to boss this outfit now? No. Uh, Andy Gillen. Andy? He's just a kid. His pa owns this herd, Marshal. Oh. What do you want, Burke? Andy... Your pa sent you on this drive to make a man out of you. Working for a murderer? Your boss now. Sell the herd, pay off the men, and get the rest of the money back to your pa. Can you do that? <laughs> I'll be right with you, Marshal. Fine boss he was. Hey, Ruman. Let's start moving them cattle downriver. All right, Let's go, you men. Well, what do you think, Doc? Well, Matt, that man Hodges was shot in the head. And by somebody who was lying on the ground. Oh, Burke admits doing it. Then I guess he did it all right. Yeah, but there's something he isn't telling me, Doc. And knowing Harley Burke, I'm going to have a hard time finding out what it is. Hey, Sam. Yeah, Marshal. Uh, bring me a beer, huh? Why, sure. Good evening, Marshal. Ah, oh, hello, Ruman. You get Burke down to jail all right this morning? Yeah, he's in jail. If ever I seen a man earned a hanging, he's it. Oh? Uh-huh. 
I take it you don't like him, Roman. We got along just fine, Marshal. He ain't seen Andy Gildon, have you? He's been sitting over there with Kitty. Where? Uh, no, there he goes out the door. Looks like he's pretty drunk, too. He is drunk. Been hunting everywhere. Here you are, Marshal. Oh, thanks, Sam. I think I'll take that beer over to the table with me. Hello, Kitty. You sure take your time, Matt. No. What's wrong? You saw me sitting here with that drunken kid. Why didn't you come over? Well, Andy Gilden may be a kid, but his pa owns the Star M. And Andy's now boss of the outfit. Hmm. I heard all about his pa. Yeah, he must be a rich man. And he wasn't talking about his money. Oh? He hates him, Matt. I never heard anything like it. Oh, why? The old man's too strict, probably. Like sending him up the trail just to make a man out of him. Yeah. Now that hasn't hurt him, Kitty. Matt, I think that boy'd kill his pa if he had a chance. All he talked about was how he'd like to get back at him. What are you staring at me for? What? Oh, I, I, I'm sorry, Kitty. I, uh, I was just thinking. Thinking about what? I'm glad I talked to you, Kitty. Maybe now I can find out what Harley Burke's holding back from me. The first part of Bringing Down Father, an episode of Gunsmoke from the late winter of 1956. And now, in the late summer of 2022, from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5, the show that you can help support and make sure Gunsmoke keeps coming your way by calling 800-248-8850 or going to WAMU.org and making a gift. I'm Murray Horwitz. Co-producer Jill Arold Bailey is with me. WAMU's interim program director, Douglas Bell, is here, too. And, Douglas, you're doing double duty tonight as yep. a co-producer. How are you doing? And you've got big news, yes? Yes, Murray. It's great to be with you and Jill tonight and with all of our big broadcast listeners. Um, we are doing great so far. Thank you so much to the 98 new and renewing members who have already uh, made a contribution tonight during this night of our fall membership campaign on the big broadcast. But we know that there are more big broadcast listeners out there, and we have a generous member match that we are able to introduce now in Ooh. this 8 o'clock hour from current WAMU members who want to show their support for the big broadcast and encourage you to join in. So this is a $10,000 dollar-for-dollar dollar member match. That means that starting now, any contribution that we receive during the big broadcast, the impact will be will be doubled. If you make a $60 donation, that becomes $120. If you make a $100 donation, that becomes $200 and so on. So don't let this opportunity go by. Double the impact of your gift and your support for the big broadcast right now at 800-248-8850 or WAMU.org. So that means we can get an extra $10,000 if we get folks to call and go online and get us 
to give us $10,000, get us. I just want the money. So please go now to those places, 800-248-8850. And I know it sounds gruesome, but there really is a beating heart that you click on at WAMU.org. It says donate. And if you do that right now, you will help us to that $10,000 goal. And it's not just... Um, the big broadcast, which, of course, as we say, is a family. It's kind of a circle, kind of a, a group, a club. We all depend on each other. But it's also uh, the return of Hot Jazz Saturday Night with my brother Rob Bamberger on Saturday nights. It's the local journalism, something that's very hard to come by nowadays that you hear throughout the week here on WAMU and to which we devote a lot of time, a lot of talent, a lot of money. To help us support that, please go now to 800-248-8850 on your phone, 800-248-8850, or wamu.org on some device, and click on Donate. And we know that the big broadcast and its sister program, the Hot Jazz Saturday Night, have very big and dedicated fans. And that's why we are thrilled to have some exciting thank you gifts available you can select in this membership campaign. Like the big broadcast mug, an oversized, beautiful, white, glossy mug, 15 ounces that sports the incredible big broadcast logo that we debuted about a year ago. Uh, that can be You can select that for a monthly gift of $12 a month or a one-time gift of $144. Or the holidays are just around the corner, believe it or not. And we actually have uh, for Hot Jazz New Year's Eve, one of our uh, holiday special programs alongside the big broadcast Christmas Eve and Christmas night uh, recollections. Hot Jazz New Year's Eve sparkling beverage flutes where you can toast jazz and radio in the new year uh, in style with WAMU in two of these beautiful six ounce flutes with a sparkling beverage of your choice. And you get a pair of those. You can select for $30 a month or a one-time gift for $360 or really any amount that you can contribute. But make a contribution at WAMU.org and make that selection or ask for them at 800-248-8850. And don't forget, we're, we're, we're working toward this $10,000 goal uh, that, that we have a member match for. And that in the mathematics that I was taught adds up to 20000 bucks. So please go to 800-248-8850 now on your phone or or, or org and click on Donate. Um, you mentioned Hot Jazz Saturday Night, the Hot Jazz New Year's Eve. We have the uh, Christmas Eve recollections and the Christmas Day recollections and all those. We, we call them legacy programs because they really are a legacy. We've uh, big broadcast has been on the air some fifty-five years, I think. Um, we know that it's a, a custody, a temporary custody, that we're in charge of this uh, precious show, and we cherish it. Ed Walker, who is our immediate predecessor, um, you, one of our recent. Uh, goals, I think a year ago, uh, on our fall membership campaign was to restore Ed's vintage radio, the one he listened to as a child, um, that opened up the world to him in his blindness. It's now back on our WAMU lobby, thanks to listeners like you. Uh, 1-800-248-8850 or WAMU.org. 
And I want to emphasize that this night really is about celebrating our members and all the reasons that they value the big broadcast. We've heard some wonderful messages from our listeners. We've heard from Hannah from Allentown, Pennsylvania, who gave and said, the big broadcast has been a huge part of my life since childhood, from listening to Gunsmoke as a kid with my dad on my way home, to listening to Johnny Dollar with my son now in Pennsylvania. The big broadcast has always been there for me and my family. Thank you so much, Hannah, and thank you for your support. We've also heard from Bonnie from Huffton, Michigan, who gave and said, I'm giving in memory of my mother. She grew up with Fibber McGee, and her father was a radio engineer. So oh I heard gosh. a lot about radio. Such wonderful contributions um, from our listeners and wonderful sentiments. And again, the big broadcast is here because of members like you who have given in the past and you can help secure the program's future with a gift right now and be part of this member match. 800-248-8850, WAMU.org. And now let's see what's going on in the realm of patrimony on the range in the conclusion of the 1956 episode called Bringing Down Father from Gunsmoke. I sure don't understand you, Marshal. Oh, why not, Burks? Come in this morning, turned me out of jail. Now you're taking me down to the stock pins. What for? Well, I thought you'd like to know how young Gildan made out with a sale of those cattle. I think you're lying. Now, there he is with that fellow Ruman again. They seem to be pretty good friends, don't they? I guess. You just won't tell me anything, will you, Burks? I'll tell you anything you want to know, Marshal. Oh, yeah, sure. Good morning, Andy. Yeah. Roman. What's Harley Burke doing out of jail? That man gets cramped in there. I was walking him around a little. Well, I ain't going to be seen with no murder. Andy, I'll be in my room at the Dodge house should you want me. Okay. Now, did you sell the herd, Andy? I sold it. You get a good price? It's no business of yours, Burke. Not no more. Now, we can always find out from the agent, Andy. All right. I got $20,000. Payable tomorrow. $20,000's a fair price. Your pa will be pleased. Why don't you take it to Mr. Bodkin at the bank tomorrow, Andy? He'll give you a note for it. I don't need no bank. And I don't need no advice either, Marshal. Now, look, Andy, you can't carry that money home in cash. Why not? Nobody does. There's too many jayhawkers and bushwhackers waiting along the trail. Now, you know that. I don't know nothing. Except you can leave me alone. Both of you. We're only trying to help, Andy. I'll do my job, and you do yours, Marshal. You go hang Harley Burke. Albert? Well, the boy's kind of headstrong, Marshal. That's all you've got to tell me, huh? That's all. All right, then let's get back to jail.
sorry in a hurry, Mr. Jones. I want to find Andy before he talks to Roman Chester. It's been over a half hour already. Well, there's his room. If he's in it. Yeah, well, let's hope he is. Open up, Andy. What do you want now, Marshal? Your gun. Come here now. What are you taking my gun for? For Chester to hold on you while he's walking you to jail. Jail? Well, you're talking crazy, Marshal. Keep your voice down. Now, here's his gun, Chester. And you put him in a far cell. And you keep him quiet, huh? Real quiet. I understand. Come on, get moving, Andy. Ow! Now, look here. You don't shut up, I'll lump up your head with this gun. You can't arrest me. I ain't done nothing. Get moving. You can't do this. Of course I can. Hello, Marshal. I'd like to talk to you, Roman. Sure, money. Roman, have you seen Andy Gilden in the last half hour? <laughs> oh, sure. You was there at the stock pen. Why? Well, a few minutes ago, he was seen leaving town, riding north. So? I saw him myself. He was riding awful fast, Roman. A lot of men ride out of town, Marshal. Maybe he's got a gal out the country somewhere. Yeah, maybe. Well, what you thinking? I was with the agent who bought the Star M herd. Yeah. He got the $20,000 up today, and he didn't have to wait till tomorrow. Say he was headed north? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Texas is south of here. Stealing that money. Stealing it from his own paw. Looks that way. Well, ain't you going after him, Marshal? Well, he's a gildan. I kind of look on it as a family matter, Roman. Uh-huh. And I'm going after him. No, you're not. You go after him, there'll be a fight. Maybe a killing will let his paw worry I'm about I'm going it. after him, Marshal. You can't stop me. Can't I, Roman? Here, Marshal. You got Burke back in jail? Yeah. Well, I got something to say. And I want him to hear it, too. Cells are out back, Roman, through that door there. All right. Burke, Roman's got something he wants both of us to hear. Roman, huh? Well, I've been waiting long enough. What do you mean? It was you who kicked me in the head and shot Hodges. You know what you're going to say? It was not me, done it. Of course it was. Now, don't be a fool, Burke. What'd I get out of it? I don't hate old man Gildon. I don't want to steal his money. Nobody stole his money. You mean you ain't heard? Heard what? Andy got paid off for them cattle today, and he rode out of town headed north. He did, huh? And what's more, he told me he killed Hodge. He's lying. He... And I can prove it. They tricked us. Andy, they tricked us. They got us crossing each other. Roman killed him. And I can prove uh, it. Oh, I kill you for that. Roman. Chester. Yes, sir. He, he got him all right. 
Got him right in the head. He's dead. Uh, would you let him do that for him, Marshal? Well, he wouldn't have talked if I'd have disarmed him, Burke. I had to take a chance. Yeah, yeah I guess you did. Maybe if you had a talk, none of this would have happened. Well, I knew I didn't shoot that man, Marshal. But I knew the only way I'd ever find out who did was to just wait and see what they was after. Well, you knew they were in it together down at the stock pens. You knew they were going to keep the money. Yeah, but I didn't know which one was the killer. Well, it doesn't matter much now. Andy's dead and Ruman will hang anyway. But why were you protecting the two of them? Why did you take the blame? Because I was afraid it might have been the kid that done it. Old man Gildon's the best friend I got in this world. I couldn't never have faced him if I'd brought his boy up here to hang. Now, uh, I understand the boy hated him. But he didn't hate Andy, Marshal. All he wanted was for him to be a man. Well, something went wrong with that. Sure did. Burke. Yeah? You did all you could. When the old man hears the whole story, he... You'll know what a good friend you've been. With our star, William Conrad. Chesterfield packs more pleasure because Chesterfield's more perfectly packed. Chesterfield, made by exclusive Accuray, packs more pleasure because it's more perfectly packed. Unlocks all the pleasure of fine tobacco. Chesterfield packs more pleasure because Chesterfield's more perfectly packed. Firm and pleasing to the lips, Chesterfield, mild. Yet they satisfy the most. You know, one of the most unpopular men on the frontier was the peace officer. Most everyone felt that they had some reason to dislike him. But next week, a man arrives in Dodge who wants to be Marshal. And that was the West. Good night. Gunsmoke. Produced and directed by Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Our story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Hanley and Bill James. Featured in the cast were William Idelson, Lawrence Dobkin, and Vic Perrin. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Join us again next week for another specially transcribed story on Gunsmoke. Bringing Down Father, an episode of Gunsmoke from March of 1956 and from this fall membership campaign edition of the big broadcast on WAMU 
888-900-885. We're thanking you for your support, and you can continue that support by calling 800-248-8850 or visiting wamu.org and clicking on Donate. And don't forget about the $10,000 dollar-for-dollar matching grant, matching grant we have for the big broadcast this evening. I'm Murray Horwitz. Co-producer Jill Arald Bailey and Douglas Bell are with me. Co-producers, I should have said. And once again, the website is wamu.org and the phone number is 800-248-8850. That's right. And we do have an update now on that member match up. Uh, we have 7,700 to go in the match. So we have half an hour. And if you have not called 1-800-248-8850 or gone online to wamu.org and clicked on donate and chosen your level of giving, now is the moment. Don't wait. This is your moment to make a difference for something you care about. If you're listening right now, you care about it. You are here spending your time with us. We're hoping that you can also spend a little bit of your money with us. And that will help to send a clear message about keeping the big broadcast here on Sunday nights. Call 1-800-248-8850 or go online to wamu.org. And when you do so, you will double the impact of your gift right now. We've got so many reasons to give. And happily, we've got comments from listeners who say it better than we could ourselves. Somebody said, Debbie from Arlington, Virginia, she made a gift and says, always something to listen to and learn. Love Johnny Dollar and Gunsmoke. Noel from Greensboro, North Carolina made a gift and says, the big broadcast has been a great source of entertainment for my family for years. We love it. And Adrian from Bethesda, Maryland made a gift. She says, my appointment listening includes the Politics Hour with Kojo Namdi and Tom, Hot Jazz Saturday Night, and especially the big broadcast. The big broadcast is such a treasure. Double the impact of your gift right now. Go to wamu.org and click on Donate or call 800-248-8850. And, you know, that is the thing about WMU. You know that whenever you turn it on, whether it's Sunday nights with us or any time during the week, you're going to hear something that's worth your time. It's going to be well-written. It's going to be interesting, informative. And when it comes to us on Sunday nights, the weekends, it's going to give you something that's not just going to entertain you. It's going to give you a breather, a little remove from the the tumult of the week and, and some perspective on all that we're going through. And we all need that breather right mm. now, don't we? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you can show how much you appreciate it, whether that's $5 a month or $1,000 a month. I mean, we really don't know what that is until you tell us. We'll breathe a little easier when you do tell us. So call 1-800-248-8850 or go to wamu.org and click on Donate. Again, $7,700 to go to meet that $10,000 match. So please go to those places now, wamu.org, and click on Donate. Call 800-248-8850. And what you said, Jill, about the things you listen to, whatever you hear, whenever you tune in to 88.5, you'll always hear good writing. You'll hear a civil tone that respects you, that doesn't insult you, that doesn't insult your intelligence. You'll hear a tone of, of, of humor that's not nasty. And here on the big broadcast, something we try to do, then the whole station tries to do, 
a, a real quest to find the expressions of artists and communities that were ignored and underrepresented and always telling the story with sound. If you respond to that, please go right now to WAMU.org, click on The Beating Heart, or call 800-248-8850. We heard here from Douglas. This is a different Douglas than the Douglas Bell in the (laughs) studio with us. But Douglas from Fairfax, Virginia, made a gift, and he said, the programs aired on the big broadcast provide a weekly respite from my day-to-day routine, while the informative introductions provided by host Murray Horowitz and the production team lend helpful context that remind me how America has changed since the mid-20th century, both for the worse and for the better. And I love that. Thank you, Douglas. We try to to provide you with uh, a more, um, a wider view of, of what was going on in America from the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, and to give you context for that. And Murray does such a wonderful job with that. So if you appreciate that context, if you appreciate Murray bringing you into that space, that history, then call 1-800-248-8850 or go to wamu.org. And do that just as Carrie from Silver Spring, Maryland did, Vinita from Washington, D.C., Anne from Arlington, Virginia, Ariella from Rockville, Maryland, Michelle from Bowie, Maryland, David from Montgomery Village, Maryland. They went to WAMU.org. They called 800-248-8850. They helped us make this $10,000 member match. We need you to do the same, please. And thank you for, Jill, mentioning the context of what we do. What's that they say? You can't know where you're going if you don't know where you've been. Well, every week, the big broadcast gives you a vivid sense of where we've been in the past hundred years. That's right. And speaking of where we've been and relevance to today, Murray. Well, yeah, here's a rather stunning example. Just 10 days ago, we lost one of the great world figures of the last hundred years, Queen Elizabeth II of the United Kingdom and beyond. She was born right at the outset of the golden age of radio, and she grew up right in the midst of it. Well, now we're going to hear one of her most famous and in some ways her most important radio broadcast. It'll give you an idea of why Queen Elizabeth was so beloved, not only by her subjects, but by people around the globe, especially the ones Winston Churchill called the English-speaking peoples. The time was the fall of 1940. The bombardment of London by Nazi Germany had begun. And right in the middle of it, on Sunday, October 13th, then Princess Elizabeth, heir presumptive to the throne, made her first radio appearance. She addressed her remarks to the thousands of British children who had been evacuated from the cities, many of them overseas to Canada and Australia, New Zealand and South Africa, and the United States. Her brief talk, with a cameo appearance by her younger sister, Princess Margaret, came on a popular broadcast series for young people. It was a stunning public debut. And who could fail to fall in love with the sincere, articulate, 14-year-old voice of the future Queen of England, Princess Elizabeth, as she spoke to the world on the BBC program, The Children's Hour. This is the BBC Home Service. Hello, children everywhere. This is one of the most important days in the history of Children's Hour. Some time ago, we were honoured by the visit to the studio of the King and Queen with Princess Elizabeth and Princess Margaret during the broadcast of a Toy Town programme. 
Today, Princess Elizabeth is herself to take part in the children's hour and speak to the children of the empire at home and overseas. Listeners in the United States of America will also hear this broadcast. Her Royal Highness, Princess Elizabeth. In wishing you all good evening, I feel that I am speaking to friends and companions who have shared with my sister and myself many a happy children's hour. Thousands of you in this country have had to leave your homes and be separated from your fathers and mothers. My sister Margaret Rose and I feel so much for you, as we know from experience what it means to be away from those we love most of all. To you living in new surroundings, we send a message of true sympathy, and at the same time, we would like to thank the kind people who have welcomed you to their homes in the country. All of us children who are still at home think continually of our friends and relations who have gone overseas, who have travelled thousands of miles to find a wartime home and a kindly welcome in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa and the United States of America. My sister and I feel we know quite a lot about these countries. Our father and mother have so often talked to us of their visits to different parts of the world. So it is not difficult for us to picture the sort of life you are all leading and to think of all the new sights you must be seeing and the adventures you must be having. But I am sure that you too are often thinking of the old country. I know you won't forget us. It is just because we are not forgetting you that I want, on behalf of all the children at home, to send you our love and best wishes to you and to your kind hosts as well. Before I finish, I can truthfully say to you all that we children at home are full of cheerfulness and courage. We are trying to do all we can to help our gallant sailors, soldiers and airmen. And we are trying too to bear our own share of the danger and sadness of war. We know, every one of us, that in the end all will be well. For God will care for us and give us victory and peace. And when peace comes, remember, it will be for us, the children of today, to make the world of tomorrow a better and happier place. My sister is by my side, and we are both going to say good night to you. Come on, Margaret. Good night, children. Good night. And good luck to you all. And if I may be allowed, I would like to say what is in the minds of all the children listening. Thank you, Princess Elizabeth, very much for broadcasting in the children's hour. The first ever radio broadcast of the teenager who, soon enough, would become the longest reigning monarch in British history, Princess Elizabeth, 
in the midst of the London Blitz in October of 1940. You heard it here on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5, where we're in the midst of our fall membership campaign. It's a great chance for you to show your appreciation for Vintage Radio and become a sustaining member of WAMU. And don't forget, we have a $10,000 member match we're working on. Please call now, 800-248-8850, 800-248-8850, or go to wamu.org and click on Donate. In the meantime, with yet another vintage radio moment that resonates today when incidents of domestic terror have, alas, become almost commonplace, here's an episode of Dragnet that centers on an all-too-frequent occurrence in our country today, a bomb threat. In fact, the episode's called The Big Bomb. From July 13, 1950, and NBC, here's the first part of it from Dragnet. Ladies and gentlemen, this true story concerns the heart of a great city. It took 58 minutes to resolve the question of its safety or its total destruction. This is the story of those 58 minutes. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Dragnet. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Tuesday, November 15th. It was raining in Los Angeles. We were off duty reporting in on an emergency call. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Lynn White, deputy chief of police. My name's Friday. It was 8.25 a.m. when I walked into the main street entrance of the city hall. I'm Friday? Yeah, that's right. You have to take this elevator, Sergeant. It's the only one to serve. Right. Thank you. Yeah. I'm going to run you up to 16. Chief's waiting for you up there. Well, what's the pitch? Only one elevator here in service out of 10. The place looks deserted. What's going on? Well, nobody in the building, Sergeant. All the office people have been sent home. Lots of trouble. Somebody declare a holiday? No joke, Sergeant. Big trouble. Well, you convinced me. What is it? Here we are, 16th floor. Okay. Over here, Friday. Right. Hi, Jim. Hello, Ben. You made a good time. I came as soon as I got the call, Lynn. Sorry to have to bring you back in. You worked last night, didn't you? Yeah, midnight to 8 this morning. Sorry. Come on. What is it, Skipper? Why all the hush hush? Wait till we get inside. In here. Okay. Number one, let's keep our voices down. All right. I'll make it as brief as I can. Every night counts. What time you got, Friday? 8.33. All right, here it is. Fifty-five minutes ago, a man walked into this building with a homemade bomb under his arm. If we don't release his brother from the county jail by 9 o'clock this morning, he says he'll pull the trigger on the bomb and blow up the whole building. He's kidding, Skipper. Who is the guy? Name's Vernon Carney. Here's his package. He and his brother have been in and out of jail since 1937. Small-time thieves. Hmm, FBI kickback here. We had him once before, both of them. Brother's name is Elwood. Serving a year for car stripping. 
And this two-bit thief is sitting here in the city hall with a bomb on his lap? That's right, the next room. Well, what kind of a bomb is it, Lynn? You think he's bluffing? Could be bluffing. The crime lab says no. Lee Jones from the lab get a look at it? He's been in here twice. One of the boxes glass. Says he can't see much without a closer look, but you can't get near the guy. All right, what do you want us to do? It's a volunteer job. I can take it or leave it. I won't order you to do it. How do you want to handle it? You sure you want a piece of this, Romero? No, no, he doesn't. He's got a family. Can you get me another single man? We'll give it a try. Wait a minute, Joe. What makes this job so different? Every time we kick in a door, we never know what's on the other side. That's what makes it different. This time we do. No, you're not going to cut me out. Not the only time I know what I'm getting into. All right. Chandler's tried. Hannon, Davis, Watson, they've all tried. This guy Carney knows what he's doing. He's no pushover, but somebody's got to get that bomb away from him. Joe, baby, now. I looked at my watch. It was 8.36. We left Chief White and started down the hall. If Carney was going to make good his threat to blow up the building by 9 o'clock, we had exactly 24 minutes to talk him out of it. Ben and I figured we'd better look him over first and then work out some kind of a plan. Maybe just talking to him would do it. Vernon Carney was sitting in a straight-back chair against the far wall facing the door. He was seated between two windows that looked out over the city. In the center of the right wall was a connecting door leading to the office where Chief White had briefed us. The door was locked on both sides. Just off the center and favoring the left of the room was a small filing table. There was a dictaphone on it. In the near left corner, shielded by a white screen, was a small wash basin. Vernon Carney sat erect, holding a black box on his lap. He held his right hand inside one end of the box. Ben and I walked into the room. What do you say to a man with a bomb? That's close enough. Cigarette, Carney? I'm not smoking right now. What are you trying to prove? You know what I want. We're not going to let your brother out of jail. You've got until 9 o'clock to change your mind. According to that clock up there in the ward, you've got 24 minutes. If we go, you're going with us, Carney. Don't take much of a brain to figure that one out, copper. What made you think you could get away with this? I haven't yet. It ain't 9 o'clock. Unless that clock's slow. I haven't checked it against my pocket watch lately, and that's the one that's running this show. You giving any thought to all the innocent people that are going to go up with that thing of yours? My brother's innocent. I want him out of jail. The court says he's guilty. He'll get out when he serves his time. That's where you're wrong, copper. He gets out at 9 o'clock this morning. All right, come on, Connie. Get your hand out of that box. Put the box on the table. You think I'm bluffing, don't you? I'm going to let you get within five feet of me before I make a liar out of you. All right, Connie. I guess you mean business. You can take three more steps and find out for sure. Suppose we did let your brother out. We'd just come out and pick him up again, you along with him. If you could find us. Let's get this straight. If we let your brother Elwood out, how do we know you'll keep your promise? What promise? I haven't made any promises. You just get Elwood down here first, then we'll talk about it. Look, there's just one thing I can't figure, Carney. Yeah, what's that? If we don't let your brother out, you say you'll pull the trigger on that bomb. What are you going to prove by then? It's 8.37 now. You've got 23 minutes left? No, I wish you'd answer that one for me. Why do you want to kill a lot of innocent people? Don't try to con me, copper. I know they cleared everybody out of this building 45 minutes ago. I know they cleaned out the whole block. They got it roped off. Where'd you get your information? I got a couple of windows here to look out of. Don't you think it's about time you sent somebody over to get Elwood? What's to stop us from leaving the building along with the other few officers and let you sit here and touch off that bomb? Go ahead. Won't be a long wait without you. 
Who are you trying to kid? You'd let me blow up $10 million worth of taxpayers' money? No, you're going to let Elwood out. You wait till the last minute to do it. But you let him out. All right, let's go. Lynn, listen. Yep. I'm still not convinced that Carney can back up what he says. Well, why don't you take the box away from him? Yeah. Well, we're in a spot. Let's face it. How about us getting him first? How are you going to handle it? I'm not top man on the pistol range, but I could wing him. Then he hands the box to you? Or maybe he falls and his reflex action pulls the trigger. Okay, I don't wing him. I stop him for key. Just can't walk in there and shoot him down. Why not? You do the same thing with any armed criminal. Yeah, but you warn him first. I'll warn him. And after you shoot him, you find out it's a harmless gadget. Couldn't have gone off in a million years. No, a gun's not the answer. We can't shoot him until we're positive. We'll be positive by 9 o'clock, but then there might not be anybody around to shoot him. We've located Connie's apartment. There's a detail out there checking it now. Bocelli and Morris. Have you got any ideas at all? Anything we could try? That's why I called you in. None of us have gotten any further than you did just now. But it's just one thing I want to know for sure. Yeah, Friday. Is it or isn't it? We all want to know. Either way, we've got to get that box away from you. I get it. White speaking. Yeah. Did? I'll stay out there. I'll call you. That was Pacelli. They just found 28 sticks of dynamite in Carney's apartment. Carney wasn't kidding. We could see into the bomb through the glass window in one end. There was dynamite inside, and there was dynamite in Carney's room. We didn't know if he had the nerve to pull the trigger. We didn't know if it'd go off when he did, but with only minutes remaining, nobody wanted to take the chance. From here on in, all of us agreed that Vernon Carney sat in the next room, holding in his two hands a force powerful enough to destroy us all. I looked at my watch. It was 20 minutes till nine. How do we get it away from him? I got an idea. It might work. Let's have it. Well, Carney's sitting against the far wall between two windows, and they're both open. That's right. If we could get a man through one of those windows, we might get Carney from behind. How are you going to get him? Well, whoever gets through the window could slug him. What do you do then? Somebody grabs the box. The crime lab can tell us what to do with it then. How do we get a man through one of those windows? We're on the 16th floor. Well, there's some kind of a ledge that runs around the building on each story, isn't there? Wide enough for a man to walk on? Let's take a look. All right. Looks pretty narrow, Joe. Mm-hmm. Good 18 inches. Could be done. Too risky. It's been raining out. That light is slippery. Strong wind out there, Joe. Tear a man right off the building. Yeah, I guess you're right. There's still a way. How about a ladder? 16 floors, Skipper. Well, there might be a way. The fire department would know that. I'll get Battalion Chief Erickson. There's Lee Jones in the building. No, he's over at the crime lab. I'll get him up here, too. I don't know, Friday. Maybe it'll work. It's got to, Lynn. All right, now look. It's going to take a couple of minutes to set this up. We've got to know what Connie's doing every second of that time. How about the dictaphone on the table in there? Good. Get it on without him seeing you. We'll try. That dictaphone in there is connected to this one in here. This room is 1614. You got that? Yeah. All right. Push down key 1614 on that machine in there and leave it down. Get the receiver off the hook and leave it off. Leave the receiver off. That's right. You know, if it isn't off the hook, we won't be able to hear a thing in here. Right. Come on, Ben. Lynn White speaking. Give me Chief Erickson. Still in his cell. You coppers are long on talk, short on time. Yeah, we know. I'm telling you, for your own good, you better get Elwood over here. Carney, I'll bet if we get your brother on the phone here, he'll tell you that he doesn't want any part of this. 
You mean Elwood doesn't want to get out since when? Sure he wants out, but not your way. He's only got a year to serve. Why don't you leave him alone? I told Al. I told him I'd get him out. He didn't think I could do it, but I'm doing it. I'll make you a bet, Carney. You let us get your brother on the phone. He won't walk out of here with you. Get him on the phone. All right. Where are you going? Phone's over here. Have to use the dictaphone. I got to get an okay from the chief. Elwood's still a prisoner. What's the matter with the phone? No operators. You know the building's been cleared. That's right. I almost forgot. Okay, you can use the dictaphone. It's Friday, Chief. Carney wants to talk to his brother. I know you'll have to send somebody over. Have him put the call on the extension. Wait a minute. What's that extension number there? 2351. 2351, Lynn. Right? It'll take a minute. All right. I kind of like to talk to Al. Been a couple of months since I've seen him. We've always been together, me and Al, most of the time. Joe, let's go in and see if we can't hurry that call. That's a good idea, boy. It's 16 minutes to nine. Yeah. Hey, cop. Yeah. You got to hang up the dictaphone, didn't you? A Nail Biter from Dragnet, part one of The Big Bomb, the episode from October 13th, 1950, and we'll have the conclusion in just a few minutes here on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz, and tonight's the only night when the big broadcast with Dragnet and your other old-time radio favorites is coming to you during our fall membership campaign. So please take advantage of this singular occasion and of our $10,000 member match and show your support. It's easy, as our co-producer Jill Arold Bailey can tell you. Just go to WAMU.org and click on Donate or call 800-248-8850. It really is that simple, and it only takes a couple of minutes. We've timed it. I think we do every pitch that, or every uh, campaign that we do. We, we time this. You go call 1-800-248-8850. Speak with a real person who is there to take your call. Tell them the amount that you would like to give, That you, if you want to be a sustaining member, at what level. And then you can tell them what thank you gift you would like. To see those, you can go to WAMU.org. We have some wonderful thank you gifts there you can choose from, including our big broadcast mug. That's at the $12 a month level. And as Murray pointed out, we have this amazing member match. So what that means is we have a generous $10,000 for dollar matching grant from WAMU members. This means that your $60 donation becomes $120, your $12 a month becomes $24 a month and you are, are matched. So you get a little extra mileage out of your donation this evening. Go online to WAMU.org or call 1-800-248-8850 to take advantage of it. And think, speaking of a little extra, uh, we had a, a wonderful note from Alice from Alexandria, Virginia. She made a gift and she says, a contributing member just giving a little extra in recognition of the unique pleasures of the big broadcast. I love the subtlety of our listeners. She referred to that word that we used in our first hour. It really is a unique service. And there's an update. We have $3,000 left in our $10,000 match. We've heard from 160 new and renewing members so far tonight. Members like Gary from Deal, Maryland, Patricia from Lovettsville, Virginia, 
Jack from Arlington, Virginia, William from District Heights, Maryland, Stephen from Washington, D.C., Nancy from Reston, Virginia. Consider becoming a Leadership Circle donor if you can and double the impact of your gift. And there are all kinds of benefits that come with that $100 a month sustaining membership uh, or the $1,200 one-time gift, which you know, gets you a little, you know, occasions with some of us hosts here at the big broadcast for enough money, I'll stay away. In any case, go to 800-248-8850 or WAMU.org and thanks. And Alice is a great example of a member who is a renewing member. You know, we said earlier on this evening, we wanted to hear from uh, new and renewing members. So if you are already a member of WAMU, you can still kick in a little extra right now on Sunday night, a one-time gift, or you can increase your monthly amount. And all of that will help us. The costs are real to put on the big broadcast. Um, these, these goals that we have, these money goals, they do matter and it is in your hands. So you can join, let's see, Michael here, who says the big broadcast has always been a part of my Sunday nights, keeping me company while I wash the dishes. Michael, we're expecting you at our house. (laughs) And Bob says, I have been listening to the big broadcast with Ed Walker since I was 12. Now I'm married and I loved introducing my wife to it. We listen together now on Sunday evenings. That's really wonderful. The big broadcast keeping people together throughout the DMV and beyond. (laughs) That's right. And we hear so many comments like this where we have um, the big broadcast bringing people together, whether that is bringing it to the next generation or listening since they were a a child with their parents or introducing their their fiancés and then their spouses. Um, And it all starts with members supporting the show so that new members can discover it, you know, five years from now. So you can be part of that. Call 1-800-248-8850 or go to our website, wamu.org, and click on the donate button. Member match update, $2,000 left to go in the match. Just a couple of leadership circle donations of $100 a month or $1,200 a year, and we'll bust through that one. Go to 800 800- Go to WMU.org and click on Donate or call 800-248-8850. One of the things we cherish here on the big broadcast that's uh, that you don't hear too much of or see too much of uh, in broadcast media today is variety. You get drama, comedy, music, literature, current events of the day. And uh, it, you, now we tend to be narrowcast, too. It's important to get a kind of conversancy with all of the things of American culture, and we try to do it here on the big broadcast. If you can, go to wamu.org and click on Donate or call 800-248-8850. You've heard from Jill Errold Bailey this hour. She and Douglas Bell, from whom you've heard, are the co-producers of the big broadcast tonight. Mike Kidd and Kenny Pirog are the audio engineers, and this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. Now, while you're calling or giving at WAMU.org, here's the thrilling conclusion to The Big Bomb, a 1950 episode of NBC's Dragnet. I put the receiver back on the dictaphone. Ben and I had failed to make good on the first step of the plan. When we got outside the door, we briefed Davis and Watson. They went in to sit with Carney. It would be their job to keep us posted on Carney's movements. The dictaphone was out. 
We went back into the office next door. Chief Sam Erickson of the fire department and Lieutenant Lee Jones from the crime lab were already there. Would have been a help. We haven't got time to cry over it. Connie's wide awake, Skipper. He doesn't miss a thing. White told us a plan Friday. We can't run a ladder up from the street. Too high, huh, Chief? The best we've got is a 100-foot aerial. You figure 12 foot to the story, that'll take you up 96 feet, eight floors. Mm-hmm. We got the latest equipment. What's that idea you had, Jones? Sam, can you get a hold of a pump here in a hurry? Sure, we got a lot of scaling ladders, but you got nothing up there to hook them on. You figure on dropping down from the floor above? That's right, and I figure a pump here would do it. Sure it would. You could uh, make it past the window cell up there, but you got a foot and a half ledge in the way. No, what you want's a lifeline. You mean lower a man on a rope, Chief? Yeah, Romero, that's the quickest and the quietest. Could you rig it so one of my boys could do it? Sure, Len. What's the risk? None, if you work it right. We'll strap on a life belt, give the man heavy leather gloves. Two of my men will lower him down. Pick your lightest man. What do you think, Lee? That's it. What do we do with the bomb when we get it? I figure that box Connie's holding is about a foot square. Here's what I'll do. I'll get you a bucket with a foot and a half mouth, and it'll be full of water. Yeah? I'll have it right outside the door to that office. When you get that box, place it in the water. We'll get the bucket out of the building as fast as we can. Once we get the bomb underwater, we're in the clear? I can't promise you that, but it's the safest way to handle it under the circumstances. All right, that's it. Sam, you take care of your end? Right away. I'll get a detail to give me a hand down on the street, and we'll take the bomb to a safe area and decommission it. Let's move on it. All right, then. Which part do you want, the rope or the bomb? You call it. Fire Chief Erickson said the lightest man on the rope. That's me, Joe. All right, I'll get the bomb out of the building. Okay, that's the routine. I'll carry this with you. The man that comes down that rope has one chance to make good. Slug him and make it count. There's no second try. Yeah. And Joe, when you grab that box, you've got to get it away from Carney before he can squeeze the trigger. Then you've got to get it down the street. The elevator. You know how to operate it? Well, it's pretty simple, but I'll double check with the operator. And you better do it right now. Okay. Say we better get Carney's brother on the phone for him. He seemed anxious. That might be a pretty good idea. All right, Romero. That's the outside phone. Get the city jail. Right, Skipper. Get going, Friday. Right. Hey, you, elevator man. Yes, sir. I want to see if I know how to work this thing of yours. Uh, you taking over the elevator? In a couple of minutes. You want to check me out? Nothing to it, Sergeant. Um, here's the control. You push this lever right to go up, left to go down. You see this little trigger on the underside of the handle? Yeah. Uh, that's a safety lock. Be sure you squeeze it. You can't move the lever. That's all right if I try it. Okay. Where will I turn off the master switch? All right. That's it. Right to go up, left to go down. All right, now, how do you operate the doors? Automatic. They work off the control lever. When the control lever is locked in the up or down position, the doors will close. I got it. Now, in case they jam, this red emergency button up here? Uh, yeah. Yeah, push it. If that doesn't close, then we call the repairman. Okay, I think I got it. You want to turn that switch back on? All right. You sure now? I have my orders to get out of the building. I'll just leave the elevator right here and take the stairs down. All right. Thanks a lot. Uh, Sergeant, hmm. just curious. You going to take the bomb down this car? We're going to try. You won't have any trouble. We haven't had an elevator failure in 18 months. The elevator man turned and went down the stairs. I started down the corridor and met Ben outside the office. He told me that Lee Jones and Chief Erickson were on their way up in the freight elevator at the rear of the building with the necessary equipment. The two fire department volunteers were with him. The phone call had been put through to the city jail, and in a minute, Elwood Carney would be ready at the other end of the line. We went in to tell Carney. I told him over at the jail to put the call through on extension 2351. When's it coming through? Right now. You got Elwood with you? No. We told you we'd get him on the phone for you. Call will be through in a minute. A minute's a long time, cop. You only got 12 of them left. Elwood's going to talk you out of this. Oh, sure, sure. Everybody's going to talk me out of this. First, it was them other two cops, the little porky guy, not the monkey. And you and this Dixie doughhead here. Now it's Elwood. 
Now, come off it, will you? Get my brother over here. That's him now. It's your brother, Connie, I guess. They put you. Just gonna get the phone. You want to talk to your brother, don't you? I'll take care of the phone. We'll just disconnect it for a little. Now, get this straight, copper. I'm through with you stinking, rotten lion. I want Elwood here, and I want him now. Now, bring him here before I blow you all to pieces. Who threw that phone out in the hall? I did. You want me to go out there and pick it up? Hey, that's not going to get you any place. Are you the big boss around here? Maybe. Are you, Ranch? I answered you. All right, big boy, I got a piece of advice for you. You take your rookie cops here and get it through their thick heads. I mean what I say. I want my brother over here in this room. And you've got just 11 minutes to get it done. Now you tell him that, will you? All right, Connie. It's your show. We gotta work fast now. Jones, everything's set for you. Got the bucket with the water right here. Cars waiting down the street. Right. Erickson, your boys ready? Upstairs, waiting. We all know what to do. I'll need somebody to give me a hand with Carney when he falls. I'll be in there with you Friday. Ready to go upstairs, Chief? Anytime. One thing you ought to know. What's that? Wind's getting stronger, about 20 miles an hour out there right now. That gonna last us up? No, but it's going to increase the sway. You gotta allow for it. How do you mean? Wind's coming from the south. We'll lower you just to the right of the window. If I figure right, the wind will do the rest. Bigger risk, but we don't control the weather. How are you going to do it, Ben? As soon as I get in position, I'll reach in through the window on his right and I'll use the billy. Try to catch him on the right side of the head. One good hit should put him away. Make it two and be sure, huh? All right, you ready, Chief? Let's go. What's the time, Friday? 8.50. Shouldn't take more than a couple of minutes for Romero to get down to that window unless the wind gives him trouble. Jones, there's no use you sticking around. I'll give Friday a hand. That's my job. we got to keep you alive to decommission the bomb. Bum joke. See you downstairs. You ready, Lynn? Yeah. Scared, Friday? Yeah. Makes us even. Come on. Lynn White and I went into the next room with Vernon Carney. Ben was going to make a try from the window on Carney's right. Somehow he had to keep his attention on us and away from that window. If anything went wrong and Carney got out of position, the plan had failed. Chief Erickson didn't estimate the force of the wind correctly. The plan had failed. I looked at my watch. It was eight minutes to nine. Carney, anything we can say that'll make you change your mind? I've asked you a hundred times. Now I'm ordering you. They're going to get to a phone and have somebody send Elwood over here right now. I'm, I'm through waiting. Now move. You ripped the phone out, Carney. Well, then find another one. I told you, I'm sick of your two-bit stall. We've got until nine o'clock to make up our mind about this. You had until nine. You wouldn't do what I told you. Now I'm cutting you short. You guys got exactly one minute to get a phone in this room where I can hear you call a jail and have him send Elwood over here. You said nine, Carney. All right, Joe. We'll give him what he wants. Davis, unlock the connecting door to this office. I get the phone, Lee. A cord reach? Come in. Yeah. Your brother's a prisoner. He's in our custody and he's under our protection. We can't place his life in jeopardy. Leave that up to hell. Come with him. This is Lynn White. We want Elwood Carney over here at City Hall. His brother wants to see him. Explain the situation. If he wants to come, get him over here. Leave it up to him. Room 1614, you'll have to use the freight elevator. And tell him to hurry. Yeah. Tell him to hurry. Oh, that's the only smart thing you've done today. 
Now, why don't you go next door and figure out another angle? We'll wait for Elwood, too. You don't think I'd let you get out now, do you? We're all going to wait right here for my brother. In case he don't show up, you're going to see me pull the plug. Now, sit down. Not so close, right where you are. Sit down. Loud clock, ain't it? It's windy. It's getting cold in here. Maybe I had a closer window. I turn on the heat. Stay put, cop. What's that? What's going on? Get the wind, cop. Cop! There's somebody out there. I can see his feet. You stupid cunt. Pull him up. Get back there. You pull him up. All right, tell him to pull him up. You bet I win, you dumb coppers. You didn't think I'd miss a trick like that. Now we'll just close the windows, boys. There's one. And locked. Here's your brother, Connie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I have heard. I did it. I told you. I told you I'd do it, didn't I? That's far enough for the rest of you. Al, you come on over here. Crazy, Vern. You're crazy. That's what they've been trying to tell me. We're going home now. How are you going to do it? There's a million cops outside. People all over town heard about this. They're holding the crowd back. They ain't going to stop us now. You'll never make it, either one of you. I got him this far, didn't I? We'll make it. Vern, do you think we could do it? You. Yeah? They're going to get a car ready for us. A fast one. Have it in front of the building. Move! All right, Friday. Do what he tells you. All right. Hold it! Yeah? If you ain't back by 9 o'clock, the deal still holds. I told them I'd pull the pin at nine, Al, if they didn't let you out. You ain't fooling, Ivern. That gadget really blow? Four miles high. They won't let you pull it. We're getting out. All right, copper, get the car. You got four minutes. Hey, Ben. Ben! What happened? He spotted me? Yeah, no time to explain. Now, listen, we got to work fast. Yeah? We had to bring Carney's brother over from the jail. How much time we got? Less than four minutes. How about the ledge? Think you can do it? Strong wind, you'll have to hang on like a fly. I don't know. I can give it a try. Okay, same plan. Every second counts. Now, I can't brief Lynn. He's in the room with the guy. It's up to you and me. I'll get on the ledge from one of these offices. I hope I'll make it. If you don't, we'll know you tried. Now, hurry. Hey, Ben, wait a minute. Uh, yeah? I forgot. The windows, the one on his right, he locked it. You'll have to crawl around to the one on the left. You got it? Right. Okay. I'll be ready in two minutes out front. Fine. Ellen and I will just sit here and wait. It's going to be good being back together, huh? We always were real good together, Vern. Well, that's the way, brothers. Ought to be together all the time. Yeah, Vern, I'd feel better with the gun. We don't need no gun. We got the bomb. We need a gun when we get out. We get on the road. Okay, take your pick. They all got them. You, give him yours. I'm not carrying a gun. I left it in the other room. A cop without a gun? <laughs> Who's kidding who? I left it in the other room. Frisk the big boy, though. He's got one, huh? It's about time for that car, ain't it? It's two minutes to nine. Yeah, this feels like it right on his hip. Hey, you grab him, Joe. I got him. Get the box. Leave that gun alone. I got him, Ben. I gotta get his hand out of it. Run, Joe. Get in the water. Run! elevator, 16 floors isn't very much, but I never shared an elevator with a live bomb. It seemed like hours between floors. I kept watching the bucket, 
The bomb was completely underwater. A small stream of bubbles was hissing to the surface. I waited. Main floor. I picked up the bucket and ran for the street. I missed the first step. I fell forward. The bucket spun out of my hand. I sprawled flat on the sidewalk. I waited for the explosion. It didn't go off, Friday. Yeah. I gave it a good chance, Lee. It was all there. Look, at least a dozen sticks of dynamite. Snyder, bring that over here. Here you are, Lieutenant. Thanks. Here's why it didn't go off. Yeah? Had it rigged for a hard trigger pull. Would have taken a good yank to set this one off. Hi, Joe. Hi, Ben. Clumsy. The story you have just heard was true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. On February 15th, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 87, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. Vernon Carney was examined by five different psychiatrists appointed by the Superior Court and found to be mentally incompetent. He is now confined in the state mental institution for the criminally insane. Elwood Carney is now serving the balance of his sentence with no time off for good behavior. Fatima Cigarettes, best of all long cigarettes, has brought you Dragnet, transcribed from Los Angeles. NBC. I love the way they told the climax of that story with nothing but sound effects and silence. And how the last line was Ben calling Joe Friday clumsy in a terrifying episode of Dragnet, The Big Bomb from the summer of 1950 and from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz here with our co-producers Jill Arold Bailey and Douglas Bell. And Jill, I know we had a member match last hour. Did we have enough listeners to go to WAMU.org and click on Donate or pick up the phone and call 800-248-8850, 800-248-8850 to take advantage of that match? I am so happy to announce that we have heard from 186 new and renewing members tonight, which means... We met the member match. Oh, so right. Thank, thank you. you thank very you much. Thank you. And that means, of course, that we need a new goal, and we have one. So, Douglas Bell, will you please tell us what our new goal is? Yes. Thank you, Jill. So, we're actually going, we're borrowing a page from our friend Rob Bamberger on Hat Jazz Saturday Night, who has been doing his last couple of house rent parties, as he calls them, by saying, we want to see how our listeners help us set the goal. And so we have had a great response from our listeners tonight that have helped us reach a set a very strong goal. We are aiming to reach $35,000 raised over the course of the entire big broadcast tonight, and we are already well on our way there. In fact, we have under $9,000 to go to meet this $35,000 goal for the big broadcast for this, the only night of our fall campaign that you can do your part to support the big broadcast. So what part of that can you do? Con- contribute right now at WAMU.org or 800-248-8850. We can do it, big team. We can do it. 
800-248-8850 or WAMU.org. Click on that beating heart. And we have thank you gifts if you care to select them. I love what Jennifer from Falls Church, Virginia said when she made her gift. She said, I need a big broadcast mug to go with my Hot Jazz Saturday Night mug. Well, it sounds logical to me. So for $12 a month or $144 or more a year, you can have the big broadcast mug. And I have to tell you, I think I said it earlier, it's my favorite mug. It's the only, Not because it says the big broadcast on it, but it's just like exactly the right size. I think 15 ounces. It gets me off to a good start in the morning. Keeps it going for four hours of radio every <laughs> Sunday night. It's true. It's true. Stephen from Woodbridge, Virginia, he made a gift and he says, been listening to the big broadcast for years and your Christmas Eve show has been a tradition for decades. Well, you'll hear it. Uh, Saturday, December 24th this year, Stephen. And thanks so much for your gift. If you're streaming this show and it's not September 18th, know that the campaign runs through the 23rd so you can still give. Just write in the comments on our website that you're giving in honor of the big broadcast. You do that by going to wamu.org and clicking on Donate or calling 800-248-8850. And I just want to take the opportunity as uh, the as I have the privilege of being the interim program director here at Thank WAMU goodness you are, yeah. and working really closely with Jill and Murray uh, behind the big broadcast, it really is an honor and a responsibility to take stewardship of this program that has been part of the Washington area uh, airways for coming up on 60 years, yeah. just a couple more years. We'll be celebrating 60 years of the big broadcast. It's here because we know how much our listeners support the big broadcast, both with their words and their ears and also with their wallets uh, making sure that they put their voice out and says this is the kind of programming that we know we can't find anywhere else we want it to be strong we want it to grow and evolve but continue to be here as part of our Sunday Night Oasis and so thank you again to everybody who has already contributed and if you have not made a gift yet any amount helps to make a difference and help us reach our goal 800-248- 8850 or WAMU.org. You heard it right there, folks. If you didn't think that we and the whole station feel this responsibility to you keenly, you just heard our interim program director, our boss, Douglas Bell, tell you how we cherish these hours on Sunday night, on Saturday night with the Hot Jazz Saturday night. We do this for you. If you think we're doing okay at it, even if you think, eh, sometimes... Call 800-248-8850, 800-248-8850, or go to wamu.org and click on Donate. Join with Sandy and Bobby from Washington, D.C. They gave and they said that we look forward every week to entering the imaginary worlds of Johnny Dollar, Gunsmoke, our Miss Brooks, and our other favorite shows. Many thanks to the creators of the big broadcast. Well, thank you, Sandy and Bobby. And as a contributor, in a way, you are also a co-creator of the big broadcast because it's only possible with this wonderful community of big broadcast listeners. And you can join in right now. Yes, at WAMU.org or by calling 800-248-8850. And I love what Sandy and Bobby said about the worlds of imagination. We always begin by saying it's your imagination that does the work and you are a co-creator. You design the sets and the lighting and the costumes and the props and you put the pictures together in your, in, in your head. And, um, I mentioned that Douglas is our interim program director here at WAMU, which is, 
in my not-so-humble opinion, the best source of local broadcast news in the D.C. area. And one of the main things we're celebrating during this fall membership campaign, along with weekend shows like The Big Broadcast and Hot Jazz Saturday Night, is WAMU's commitment to local journalism. I used to work at NPR, and believe me, I can tell you, WAMU has some of the most talented journalists I've ever seen. That's increasingly important these days when so many local news outlets have gone under. So we've got a vintage radio way to salute WAMU's journalists, and it uses your imagination. While you're calling 800-248-8850, 800-248-8850, or going to WAMU.org and clicking on the beating heart there, we've got an episode of Nightbeat. That great series that starred Frank Lovejoy, one of Jill's favorites, as Randy Stone, ace reporter and columnist for the fictitious Chicago Star. He's on to a local story in part one of a broadcast from the eve of Independence Day in 1950 and the NBC series Night Beat. Randy Stone. I cover the night beat for the Chicago Star. My stories start in many different ways. This one began with a kid and a hundred dollar bill and ended in the death cell of Joliet. Night Beat, starring Frank Lovejoy as Randy Stone. It was a great night. Chilly as I walked hunched against the rain, stopping long enough to catch the sweetness and light in the headlines. H-bomb menace, traffic toll mounts, murder is to die this morning in the electric chair. Okay, people, keep it up. You're doing fine. But I had my own worries, wondering where my ever-loving story had come from tonight. It hit me before I expected it. A little kid, six, maybe, came running at me and into me before I could step aside. Well, you better get those brakes relined, fella. Let me go, let me go. Okay, okay, where to? I, I'm on the way, I... All right, all right, now you get your breath for the second lap. They're coming after me. Oh, who? I want to go to my mom. I thought you were running away, I, uh... Wait a second, what's this? My money. A hundred dollar bill? It's mine. Just a little loose change, huh? Please give it back to me, I gotta get a bus. Where do you live? I I want to go to to six, sixteen Wolverton. Mm-hmm. Wolverton's quite a piece from here. They're coming. They're coming after me. Who? In the auto. See. Hmm. Looks like we're surrounded, kiddo. Take it easy for a second. It's him. You've been a bad boy, Marty. None of the way like this. Oh, he's gonna take me back. Uh, you're a kid, Mister. No. What's the angle here? The kid ran away from his old man. I didn't. My father's dead. Sure. He always says that. Now, come on, Marty. No. It seems he doesn't want to go with you. He will. Or maybe not. I'd like to Shut know Shut up. What... Eddie, back. Big boys. Yeah. Mister, you just forget all about this. Marty, get in the car. Get away from that kid. Eddie, Mac. Don't! Don't hit him! Don't! 
That's a sample. Open your trap again and you get the rest. Come on, let's go. Before my eyes closed all the way, I saw them hustle the kid into the car. It began to move away, glided under a street lamp, and from the rear window a face looked out. Jerry McCallum. The brains behind almost any illegitimate enterprise you could name. Nothing too small or too big for Jerry if it made a nickel. From what I saw of McCallum's face, he could have gone in right then for murder. Mine. A half hour later, after some minor repairs on my face, I dropped in to see Sergeant Kalski. I asked some questions, and I got some answers. McCallum had never gone in for kidnapping, and no cop would stick his neck out without positive proof. If I wanted to go slumming, I was going alone. It wasn't part of McCallum's place, but knowing where he lived and getting to see him were two different things. However, I had a hunch that Jerry McCallum would see me. I made sure of it by sending him a note with one word on it, Marty. McCallum had me shown in. He smiled at me from behind a marble top desk, flanked by two of his boys, one of them my playmate of a little earlier. Oh, he's glad to see a newspaper boy, Stone. You fellas print rough stuff once in a while, but it makes good for circulation, huh? True or not? Yeah, sure. You know, we uh, make up those things printed about you. Forgive us. So, what do you want tonight, Stone? For a starter, uh, ten minutes alone with lover boy there, the one on your right. Willie Bigger? Why? Yes. Now, Willie hasn't been... I know. Hasn't been out of your sight for a week. In fact, about 40 minutes ago, he was baking a cake. Okay, forget it. Good idea. Where's the kid? Marty? Yeah. Do you like children? Yeah, until they grow up. They're nice people. The kid's none of your business, Stone. Yet I'm curious. Along comes a kid with a hundred dollars. That all? Well, he took it. I I keep lots of dough around here and drawers everywhere. The kid grabbed some and beat it. Why? Because he wanted to go home? Did he say where? I, uh... No. No, he didn't. Okay, then. This is his home. What would you say if I told you he was my kid? Nothing. I'd be speechless. Stone, forget this whole thing. You've got nothing. Nothing. Whatever you're thinking is your idea, and that's as far as we go. That's as far as you go? Both of us. Now, beat it. Don't crowd your luck. Okay. There's nothing I can prove, but it makes a good story. It's good reading. you got no finish to it. No, Frank Stockton wrote a story once, The Lady and the Tiger. There's no finish to that one either, but it caused more comment that way. You're not scaring me, Stone. People can ask all the questions they want after tomorrow. After tomorrow? Mr. McCallum, why after tomorrow? I'm sick of looking at you. I'm even sicker of listening to you. Now, get out. Oh, by the way, Mr. Get out. Yeah, one thing more, though. A friend of mine, a cop named Kowski, knows that I came here. I'm telling you in case my back looks inviting when I walk out. So long. On the way down to the street, that tight feeling grabbed my throat, made my nose itch and my eyes water. I kept my shoulders hunched against a bullet or a knife, but nothing came. Why not? I asked that a thousand times before I hit the street. I knew I didn't scare McCallum when I told him about Kalski. McCallum had a million ways to rub out anybody who got in his way and a million alibis to keep himself clear. He'd done it before. But me, he let go. Why? He said, after tomorrow. He didn't want anything to happen until after tomorrow. I kept thinking and kept walking. And then something began to go around on the back of my head. McCallum tomorrow. McCallum tomorrow, and suddenly it hit. All about the Electric Ocean PR. Paper, mister? Uh, yeah, star. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah. Nice morning for somebody to sit in a hot seat, huh? Hmm. Classy-looking dame, too. Now, why fry something like that? There's a million dollars that you better burn. McCallum's girlfriend. McCallum's. Yeah, where you been, mister? Everybody knows that. Yeah, but you forget things when they're not uh, close to you. Uh, yeah. Yeah, classy-looking dame. Never think a doll like that a bumper husband, huh? Gonna fry it. it... Hey, mister, you sick or something? Or something, yeah. Bud, you ever get a great big hunch? Once. I lost. I might, too, but it's worth a try. I grabbed a cab. I thought maybe some of McCallum's boys were tailing me, so I had the driver cut back and forth. Then, when I was sure we were clean, I had him drive to McCallum's apartment house and parked down the street a few doors. Are this okay, mister? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Turn off your motor. Okay, but I gotta leave the meter ticket. That's okay. Now, listen, now turn off your lights. Hey, what? Look, I'm Randy Stone, Chicago star. Here's my press card. Okay, okay. What's up? Hey, you take this newspaper. What do I do with it? I pretend you're reading it. All right. You want a story? Yeah. Now, look, don't pay any attention to anything. You're just part. You're waiting for a fare. You're reading that paper. Understand? I get it. Hey, well, what about you? I'll sit back. Think anybody can see me from the outside? Nah. Not if you sit in the corner. Nah. Okay. I'll just sit and read the paper. Okay. I guess this dame's going to cook, eh? Uh, yeah. You'd think a big shed like McCallum would be able to get his doll off a rat. Eh, but he didn't. I wonder. You wonder? Eh. Mister, at midnight she gets it. They pull a switch. Then, no more Lorraine Adams. Eh, ain't much to wonder about. Once hold they it, pull hold it, it in it. Hmm? Hold it, pretend to read the paper. Hmm. Can you see? Yeah. Some guys are coming out. You see? Yeah. What? Oh, they're, they're looking this way. Don't look up. One of them's coming this way. Okay, start your motor. Start pulling out. Yeah. We gotta go right past him. You better squeeze hard against that back seat. I'm all right. Don't go too fast. You know, just as though you're cruising for a fare. Okay. It's okay. They ain't looking at us. Hey. Hey, Mr. Stone, did you see that thing that was... Yeah, yeah, get past. Then step on it around the corner. Mister, I ain't sure what I see, but there was a dame just coming out of the lobby. I only got a quick look at her face. Yeah, but... yeah, so did I. What did you see? Well, if that dame was in this doll in the paper, I'll buy a horse. Yeah, so we're even. We're both crazy. I saw her, too. Lorraine Adams. How do you convince a night editor you haven't suddenly walked out from under your head? How do you do it even when you've got proof of something that sounds and looks crazy? I listen to my editor, Matt Camel. You're nuts, both of you. Stay in out of the night air. Yeah, but both of us saw. The driver... I got eyes. Yeah? You want to take any bets, either of you? Oh, wait that call comes through, Matt. When that call from Joliet comes through, five will get you tax-free ten that Lorraine Adams is sitting in the death cell right now. She's not. All you've got is a yarn about a kid wandering around holding a hundred bucks in his hot little hand. There's no record of any kidnapping, any... Look, uh, look. Lorraine Adams killed her husband because she was McCallum's girlfriend. You remember the trial? She pleaded not guilty, self-defense. Yeah, but it didn't stick. Public sentiment was against her. Yes, and no appeal, nothing. Jerry McCallum didn't raise a finger to get her off. Why not? Why not, Matt? Couldn't, that's all. With his battery of high-priced lawyers and with his connections? Okay, okay. What's your best? That Lorraine Adams is free right now. I don't know how, 
I don't know what the kid Marty has to do with it, but... There's a call, Andy. Hold your hat. Matt, come over here. Okay, put it through. Randy. What? Putting up a fire? Oh, on the line. Okay, now... Uh, uh, hello. Yeah. Uh, look, uh, Stromberg. You're covering the uh, Lorraine Adams electrocution, aren't you? Uh-huh. Well, listen. This is going to sound nuts, but is Lorraine Adams still in the death cell? Oh, you don't say. Okay, see, I thanks. Uh, no, that's all. So long. All right, all right, Matt. Give. <laughs> you know what I'm going to do with this five spot? Buy you a jacket with sleeves to tie in the back. What did Stromberg say? The Lorraine Adams execution is scheduled tonight as planned. The chaplain is with Lorraine Adams right now because at midnight, in uh, exactly two hours and ten minutes... She burns. The first part of an intriguing night beat story from midsummer 1950 and from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5, where it's late summer. 2022. Autumn starts in a few days, and we're asking you to join our fall membership campaign. It only takes a minute, so please take that minute right now and call 800-248-8850, 800-248-8850, or go to wamu.org and click on Donate. I'm Murray Horwitz, and with me are our co-producers, WAMU's Interim Program Director, Douglas Bell, and Jill Errold Bailey. Hey, Jill. Hello, Murray. I have an update for us. Oh, um, good. <laughs> we are working on a goal of 35000 tonight. That's for the whole night. Now, we have heard from 194 new and renewing members tonight, which is fabulous. We are hoping to hear from a few more of you out there. Um, and when I say out there, I do want to include the people who are far flung perhaps and listening to WAMU.org. They're, they're streaming the big broadcast right now, like Hunter from New York. So just because you're out of the DC area doesn't mean that you're off the hook here, by the way. So Hunter from <laughs> New York, he made a gift and he says, in support of my favorite shows, Gunsmoke, Dragnet, Armis Brooks, we got to bring Armis Brooks back. The Jack Benny program, and also in memory of the great Ed Walker. Amen. Thank you, Hunter. And we also have Ross from Nashville, Tennessee. So mm. Ross also made a gift. He says, I started listening to the big broadcast when I moved to D.C. in 2007. I've since moved away, but the big broadcast has remained my reliable Sunday night routine. Ah, thanks, Ross. So, Thank you, Ross. So both of these are listeners who are far flung, but they are listening on WAMU.org, the same place where you can click on the donate button. You can support our show. You can call 1-800. That's a national number. 1-800-248-8850. Again, 1-800-248-8850. And make your donation now. Here's Douglas. And what, what news do you have for us? We've got... Is under $8,000 to go, is that correct? That's it. We're working on that that goal for the night, uh, $35,000 for the entirety of the big broadcast. Um, but as is our routine, uh, we hope to meet it before we go to hour four because, uh, as we heard at the beginning of the show, we have a great uh, – 
program from Ford Theater that we're going to hear, and we're not going to be interrupting that hour to ask for contributions, though we still hope you will give. So, But help us reach that goal uh, so we can uh, wrap up this portion of the big broadcast with uh, that great news. Do your part right now, 800-248-8850 or WAMU.org. Right. We will not be interrupting the Ellery Queen mystery uh, that goes on at about 10 o'clock because, as I said, we respect you. And so please show your respect and call 800-248-8850. Make a gift. Go to WAMU.org and click on Donate. Like Nola from Washington, D.C., Carolyn from Tacoma Park, Horton from Sperryville, Virginia, Cynthia from Baltimore, Bruce from Dahlgren, Virginia, and Dale from Westminster, Maryland. They all made their voices heard. They voted with their dollars and gave us a gift at WAMU.org when they clicked on Donate or called 800-248-8850. 248-8850 or WAMU.org. And Jill, I'm actually going to hand it over to you because I know you wanted to jump in there. <laughs> Sorry, I was just going to say we do have under 8,000 to go, so that's not so very much. I know that we can hear from our members to, to bring us uh, home to that. For example, you could be like Eileen from Arlington, Virginia, a local. She says she's been a fan since Ed Walker. She never misses a Sunday evening, and she's always found it a great comfort to hear good stories told well. I love that. Good stories told well. And I know, Murray, that is um, a big point of why you love old-time radio. Oh, yeah. Stories that actually have beginnings and middles and ends. And it's something we can comprehend. 800-248-8850 or WAMU.org. You can select a thank you gift. You can get a big broadcast mug for a gift of $12 a month as a sustaining member or a one-time gift of $144. This You've only got a couple more hours to be entered into the $500 Trader Joe's gift card drawing. You don't have to give, but anytime you do give, you'll be automatically entered and to win this great prize. And more importantly, you'll be supporting the big broadcast. Um, The chance to enter for the Trader Joe gift card ends at midnight tonight, so don't wait. Give online at WAMU.org. Click on that beating heart or call 800-248-8850, 800-248-8850. And now, here's the conclusion of that suspenseful episode of Night Beat. Back to Nightbeat and Randy Stone. In two hours and ten minutes, Lorraine Adams would go to the electric chair. What I saw, and the cab driver saw, right in the middle of Chicago, free as a bird. I checked some more after I left the office. The police went along with the gag and checked the prison. Yes, the girl in the death cell was Lorraine Adams. Her fingerprints proved it. But then who was the girl the cab driver and I saw? Was McCallum going to work a switch at the last minute? Fantastic! Sure, but McCallum might be able to work it. And how did little Marty tie in? What did a six-year-old kid have to do with it? Well, I had until midnight to learn a lot of things. There was only one place to start. 616 Wolverton, the address Marty had given me. It was a cheap boarding house. I had the driver wait. I knocked on the manager's door. It took three minutes to get her out of bed, and she wasn't happy. Oh, what do you want, huh? What's the idea, huh? Uh, Randy Stone, Chicago Star. I take a newspaper. 
You're selling papers this time in the morning. Oh, no. Listen to me, will you? Magazines I'm... all day, newspapers in the middle of the night. Here, take this and listen. Ten bucks? For what? There's a little kid live here. His name was Marty, about six, brown hair, cute little guy. Are you kidding? That was four or five months ago. But he lived here? With his mother. His mother? What did she look like? Ask my husband. Where did she go? Only one thing I can tell. She worked at a joint called, uh, uh, the... Um, oh, come on now, come on. The Blue Herons. Yeah, I said, Blue Herons. Check it for you? No, thanks, honey. That clock behind you, is it right? Sure. It's only 10 to 11. The night is young. You want to bet? How long you been here? A year, maybe. Why? Well, I won't check my hat, but I'll leave this with you. For five dollars, you could leave a diving suit. Who do I kill? A girl used to work here. She had a little boy. A little boy named Marty. I don't remember. Oh, yes, you do, baby. Your face shows it. So I need makeup. You've seen the kid, haven't you? You knew his mother? Look, mister... I don't know anything that goes on. I check hats and coats. That's why Mr. McCallum pays me. McCallum? Oh, the blue heron is one of his spots. Oh, go away now, will you? Did you like the girl? She, she was a sweet kid. Well, then help her. She's in trouble. God, I don't know anything, but there was a guy, a knocked-out musician, trombone player. He, he went for a find him. Where? What's his name? Harry Aaron. He used to play here, but when Peggy left... Peggy? He... Yeah, Peggy. She... Hey... You don't even know her name. What do you want? Where can I find Harry Aaron? You get out of here. Beat it. Take it easy. Get out before I call the bouncer. With the clock getting ahead of me, I looked up Harry Aaron in the musician's directory. With only an hour and ten minutes left, I tried to find him. Yes, he played here, he played there. He was a good boy, but he was always high. I covered one spot after another. Time running out. An hour left. Fifty minutes. And then finally I hit a rooming house. One of those places where you stay up all day and all night. Anybody goes to sleep, he's a curiosity. There was a jam session going on and I headed for the music. Five boys were swinging high, but the trombone player was the one I wanted. Skinny, pale face, over with some perspiration drenched hair. I walked over to him. Cut in. What do you play? Nothing. What do you drink? Nothing. What are you living for? Harry, Harry, come on off the ceiling. Can you hear me? I want to talk about Peggy. Peggy! What? What do you say? I want to talk about Peggy. You remember? What about her? What about Peggy? Let's get out of here, Harry. There's a coffee shop down the street. Hey, buy me a drink, huh? All right, all right. But come on, huh? Hey, wait, 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 wait a second. Wait. Uh, listen to that beat, boy. It's like a train running inside. <laughs> and grab anything. Cut in any place. Peggy. Harry. Harry. Peggy. Uh, are you, you said Peggy? Harry, you got to come with me. You've got to talk. We got 40 minutes, Harry. And after that, it's kiss the boys goodbye. I made him drink coffee strong and black, and I made him walk until his head cleared up a little, but it took time. 
time and only 30 minutes of it left before that execution. And then we sat and talked. What do you want from me? I'm not out me. The top is all gone. Inside gone. What do you want from me? Peggy, where is she? And why did she leave? Who are you? I'm Stone, Chicago star. Now listen to me. You remember Marty? Marty, sure. Peggy's kid. I got a picture of her right here. Hey, That's Peggy and that's Marty right there. Peggy? This is Peggy? Yeah. Dark hair. You bleach it blonde and she... Look, Harry. Talk fast. I don't, I don't know what we'll get, but tell me when you saw Peggy last and what she said. She was going away. With him. McCallum. McCallum, why? There's one night after the show. She was in the line. She was in, you know, the chorus. Yep. I, I went to see her. I found her packing, packing a suitcase. Was, she didn't tell me before that she was walking out. She just looked at me. Say goodbye fast, Harry. Real fast. Why, kid? What's all the rush? I can't tell you, Harry. Only you're not going to see me anymore. Oh, yeah, I get it. You don't, Harry. You don't at all. Sure, McCallum. I know. We talked a long time to yesterday. It's nothing to do with McCallum. No, sure not. It's nothing to do with a knocked-out horn player either, huh? Oh, Harry. Don't talk like that. Okay, I'll play it for you sometime. Twenty choruses. I don't blame you, Peggy. I got a kid. Marty's. I'm sick, you know that. Got maybe a year. Doc said so. What happens to the kids then? What happens well, to me? Them? I could. Well, no. maybe I. I ain't going to have Marty eating off the trunk. Crackers and milk three times a day. Now, what's McCallum going to do for him? Say goodbye, Harry. Please. You know I love you. You know that? Yes. Means nothing to you. For the love get out of here. Don't stand there just looking at me. I won't be able to go through with it. I won't. And let go of Harry for my kids. Well, that's all. That's all I know. When did that happen? Five, uh, yeah, five months ago. Just before Lorraine Adams went to trial for murder. What are you talking about? Look. This is Lorraine Adams' picture in the paper. Here's Peggy. Yes. See, bleached Peggy's hair, and she's Lorraine Adams. McCallum saw that. You're crazy, Stone. You're crazy. McCallum couldn't make the switch. He did she it before would... the trial. Lorraine Adams gave herself up a week after she killed her husband. But it wasn't Lorraine, it was Peggy. Crazy. It's crazy. No. Less than half an hour, Peggy will go to the electric chair in place of Lorraine Adams. What? But get her out. You gotta do something. Our only proof is Marty, but he's at McCallum's place. Stone, she's gonna die. You said it, she's gonna die. Stone, do something. Well, I'm going to Joliet to see the warden. You gotta do something too, Harry. Find Marty. It's preposterous, Mr. Stone. Impossible. But it was done, Warden. In ten minutes, a girl will go to the chair. Ten minutes. I called the governor. He's left it up to me. Well, then stop the execution. I can do that only if this girl admits she's not Lorraine Adams. I've broken a rule, Stone, on the strength of what you've told me. The girl is being brought here, to the visiting room, to talk to you. And what if she doesn't admit? There's no proof. The execution is scheduled. Oh, where is that Harry? Warden. She's here. Bring her in, Chapel. Hello, Peggy. What is your name? I am Lorraine Adams. Chaplain, this girl is not Lorraine Adams. Didn't she tell you that? What she told me, I I cannot tell you. Uh, but in a case like I this... I confessed my crime to him and to God. 
Yes, that you took Lorraine Adams' place. You were tried, convicted, sentenced, and you'll die. In less than ten minutes, you'll die. I am Lorraine Adams. You took her place. You gave yourself up in her place. That's why the real Lorraine Adams was gone for a week, to give you time to beat your hair and... I killed my husband. You're killing yourself. For what? For Marty? For your boy? No, Peggy, no. Peggy, why don't you... There's nothing else to say. Look, you made a bargain with McCallum. What kind of a bargain? Did you never see your son again? You only had a year to live, but in that year you'd have had him. And what did you leave him to? A vicious gangster who'll never keep his promise to you. You'll die, Peggy, and so will Marty. Yes, he'll die too. As you know him, he'll be dead. Think what he'll be living with a rat like that. I'm Lorraine Adams. Lorraine Adams. Oh, Warden, I can't believe she'd lie now. She's facing death stone. She can't lie. But she is for her boy. She would. She would. Let him go, Kemp. Mom, I, I've been looking lots of places. Mom, it's me, Mom. You, you got this in here? No, Mom. You, you ain't mad at me. Oh, Marty, Marty, baby, Terry brought me, Mom. He's hurt. Where is he? I think. Out here, Mr. Stone. Hiya, Harry. Hiya, Stone. I, did I get here in time? Yeah, in time, Harry. That's uh, real out of this world. <clears throat> How did you get McCallum? A long time ago, I, I bought a gun. I, I never used it until the night. Warden, I'll get the girl. All right, Piggy. Hi, Peggy. Hi. Harry. Had a hard time trying to get in here. Take it easy, Harry. Sure. Peggy, I go... Oh, brother. Am I a knockdown character? For sure. Spell it one way, interpret it a hundred ways. McCallum's for Lorraine Adams. Be willing to wreck anyone else's life. Peggy's for Marty. Harry's for Peggy. Yeah, it's love that makes the world go round. It all depends on who does the spinning. <laughs> Copy, boy. How he made it from Chicago to Joliet in 20 minutes, I don't know. But that's the magic of radio on Nightbeat, an episode from July 3rd, 1950, and from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. With me are Jill Arold Bailey and Douglas Bell. And we're urging you, there is some urgency to us now, to take advantage of the only chance you have to show your support for the big broadcast during the big broadcast in our fall membership campaign. We're counting down to a goal of $35,000, so please go right now to WAMU.org and click on Donate or call 800-248-8850. As they used to say in radio, operators are standing by. Right, Jill? 
That's right. We have operators. If you want to speak to a real live person and not an auto robot, uh, you can call <laughs> 1-800-248-8850. Loving operators are standing by to talk with you and, and discuss what level of giving you are, are coming in at and choosing your thank you gift. So you can call 1-800-248-8850. You could also go online to wamu.org. You can do it really quickly in two minutes. That is where you click on the beating heart, the donate button. And again, you will choose your level of giving and your uh, thank you gift appropriate right there. And you can join people like Jeffrey from Virginia, who says the only show I never miss is the big broadcast. I'm just 56, but I loved the radio growing up. The only show I've heard on the big broadcast that I remember hearing on its first radio run is the Radio Mystery Theater from the 1970s. We haven't played that one in a while. I think we need to to put that back into the rotation. So thank you, Jeffrey. Jeffrey went online to WAMU.org. Uh, or perhaps, actually, I don't know, he might have called 1-800-248-8850. But either way, he stepped up as a member tonight. And we are looking to hear from a few more people. So, Douglas, mm-hmm. how many more people are you thinking we're going to hear from? I hope. I, we would love to hear from uh, any number of folks left. We've already heard from 201 new and newing members tonight. And we appreciate every single one of you. And, you know, Jill and Murray, you know, I've been sitting here um, bringing in, watching the comments come in from our listeners who have given at WAMU.org. We've shared a lot of them. We have heard from a lot of people who are longtime listeners of the big broadcast. We've also heard from some people who recently discovered the big broadcast. And maybe you recently discovered the big broadcast this year, or it became part of your weekend companionship uh, during the peak of the pandemic uh, over the last several years. This is how uh, this works in public radio. We provide these programs that you can't find anywhere else, this level of curation you can't find anywhere else, and then we ask you to make a contribution in the amount that you think this program is worth. Yes, you can listen for free, and yes, if you are not able to make a contribution right now, we do understand, but if you can make a contribution in any amount, this is your opportunity to make an impact right now. WAMU.org or 800-248-8850. Even if you only listen on the weekends or, or tune in just for the big broadcast every Sunday night, you know we're going to be here for you. We're your companions. You can count on us, but only if we can count on you. It's your financial support that keeps us here. So make sure our companionship is constant. Call now, 800-248-8850, 800-248-8850, or go to wamu.org. And click on donate, right, Jill? That's right. And I, I do want to point out something you said, which is if if if, if uh, you can count on us, but only if we can count on you. And um, I think it's no secret to people who are old-time radio fans nationwide um, over the last few years, shows like the big broadcast used to exist at different radio stations all over the country. Those numbers have really dwindled. Um, and I, I was doing a recent research on this. We are the only station in a major market. And, and there's very few stations out there, even in smaller markets, that, that do what we do. We bring old-time radio programs. We give wonderful uh, context to the show, both from the time that it, it was originally broadcast and, and the context to what it means to us today. That's what Murray provides. That's not something you're going to find just anywhere. Um, so if you would like to make sure that 
this is something that's still here on Sunday nights for you. Ensure a future for the big broadcast on Sunday nights. Then call 1-800-248-8850. Go online to WAMU.org. Click on Donate. It really is so simple, right, Douglas? That's right. We have under $6,800 to go on this stretch goal. We can do it. $35,000 for the night. Uh, Join with John from Alexandria, who made a gift and says that he gave to support their two favorite WNU programs, the Big Broadcast and Hot Jazz. And if supporting these programs isn't incentive enough, again, let me mention our are thank you gifts that you can select a big broadcast mug there is also a hot jazz saturday night mug available either one of those for a monthly gift of twelve dollars a month or more or a one-time gift of 144 dollars or more or again we have for new year's eve those hot jazz sparkling beverage flutes a pair of them that you can (laughs) select as your thank you gift for thirty dollars a month or three hundred sixty dollars one time so you can show your support for either of these two weekend shows that are really a unique offering here here at WAMU, as you have mentioned. And you can see those right now when you go to WAMU.org and you click on that donate button. And maybe you can be a leadership circle member at $100 a month in your sustaining membership or a one-time gift of $1,200. Um, it's worth it. I mean, you get to hang with uh, some of us, you know, the hosts and some of the behind-the-scenes people here at WAMU.org. We get to visit. We get valuable feedback from our leadership circle members. So try to do that. Call 800 248 8850. Talk to somebody about it or go to WAMU.org, click on Donate, and show that you want to be a member of the Leadership Circle. It's um, what everybody has been saying tonight, and thank you so much. Those who have sent in comments are are really true, and they've touched a chord in our hearts. Richard from Manchester, New Hampshire, made a gift, and he said, listened and supported for years. Reminds me of my dad, who used to do voices from old-time radio. Also, Ed, love Jill and Murray's innovations as well. Thanks so much. I don't know that we're worthy of that comparison, but it means a great deal to us. And uh, that connection with uh, that Richard made with his father, it's the kind of connection that old-time radio helps to make and that you can make when you call 800-248-8850 or go to wamu.org. We're almost wrapping up this break. Jill, what can you add? I would just say that if you've been waiting, now is your moment. You can pick up the phone and call. It's not as hard as it might feel. Rip that Band-Aid. Or if you have <laughs> if you have Internet access, you know, just go on, take the two minutes and do it. And then you can settle back and listen to this great program from the from Ford Theater. And just think, you know, depending on how much you have donated, then maybe in a few weeks from now, you're going to be sitting back listening with your big broadcast mug in your hand. So that's at the $12 a month level of giving. But just do it right now. Get it done. Check that that box so you can say, I've invested in the future of the big broadcast on WAMU. And you can feel really good about that. So call 1-800-248-8850 or go to WAMU.org. That was Jill Errold Bailey. She and Douglas Bell are the co-producers of the big broadcast tonight. I'm Murray Horwitz. Mike Kidd and Kenny Pirog are our audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. 
Before we get to our final offering this evening, we want to take one more moment to thank everyone who called 800-248-8850 or visited wamu.org to click on donate. And there's still time for those of you who haven't gotten around to it. So you can do so. Thanks not only for your gift, but also for your wonderful messages of support. We can't thank you enough. Uh, Ellery Queen, the 1928 brainchild of two sons of immigrant Jews, guys named Daniel Nathan and Emmanuel Lepofsky, is a name still synonymous with mystery stories. Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine is still being published today. In 1939, a radio series appeared, and in early 1948, some of its original cast members, that is, some of the original cast members from that early radio series, reunited on the Ford Theater. And again, that's Ford as in cars, not the theater here in D.C., So here we go. From January 4th, 1948, it's a case called The Adventures of a Bad Boy, introduced by the playwright Howard Lindsay on NBC's The Ford Theater. This is The Ford Theater, an hour of radio drama presented by the Ford Motor Company. Today's play, Ellery Queen's The Adventure of the Bad Boy. Ladies and gentlemen, Howard Lindsay speaking. Welcome to the Ford Theater, which begins today its second calendar year. During 1948, if you care to join us here each Sunday afternoon, you will encounter at this hour just about every sort of dramatic entertainment possible to radio. In the Ford Theater, the play's the thing. And in choosing plays, the management aims at quality, contrast, and variety. Last week, an original radio comedy... Next week, a great motion picture adapted for radio. And this week, mystery. This week, the Ford Theater presents The Adventure of the Bad Boy by Ellery Queen. Now, there's a man I've always envied, Ellery Queen. He gets around so much. Meet so many different kinds of interesting people, alive and dead. In the last few years, on paper and on the air, Ellery must have averaged one mysterious murder case per week, each neatly solved in the end with the culprit delivered over to justice. And not only does young Mr. Queen solve the mystery, he writes the story, too, between calls for help from the homicide squad. Also of late, he's found time to edit an excellent magazine for detective story fans to pen learned dissertations on the gentle art of mystery fiction, and to publish, just last month, an anthology of choice crime tales. He's a versatile man, Ellery, and a busy one. He is also, by this time, a legendary hero, an American Sherlock Holmes, with thousands of worshipful followers. We know that he's the son of gruff, steely-eyed, snuff-using Inspector Richard Queen who can always be reached at police headquarters on Center Street, Manhattan. And we know that he employs as his secretary the beautiful, worshipful, long-suffering Nicky, 
who even now is typing up a forthcoming chapter in the multitudinous works of Ellery Queen. Meanwhile, Ellery relaxes in an armchair, deep in thought. Because, Mr. Figerson, nature is maddeningly logical, said Ellery Queen. A bird flies, the sun rises, a river flows, and a wound bleeds. Underline, and a wound bleeds. End of chapter. Ellery. Ellery, where are you? In the armchair, Nikki. I'm finished. Lucky girl. Are you kidding? Hmm? Well, all you have to do is dictate these foul mystery masterpieces of yours. I have to type them, remember? I said, remember? What, Nikki? Oh, skip it. You haven't actually seen me for years, now you don't even hear me. Nikki, I'm sorry. Think nothing of it. After all, who am I? Birth of the typing machine, girl. Even in the sweatshop, the boss made a pass once in a while. <laughs> I'm sorry, Nikki. But I've been deep in thought. Really? About a little boy, Nikki. About a what? A little boy. Why, Ellery. Yes, it's time I did something about that situation. You're the screwiest character, Ellery. You would find a different way to do it. Do what? Oh, now we're being coy again. Most men would start the other way around. With the little boy's mother. A very nice woman, I'm told. Why, thank you. Coming from you, Ellery, that's a lavish compliment. I don't know. I'll have to think about it. Oh, you don't have to think about it, Nikki. It's really my problem. Why, you egotist. Well, I, I didn't think you'd be interested. Ellery, why do you think I've held on to this thankless, frustrating job all these years? Interested? The first thing we'll have to do is tell your father. Dad? Oh, no, Nikki. Not quite yet. Not yet? Why keep it a secret from the inspector? Because I'm not familiar with all the facts, Nikki. Facts? Yes, it might not even be a matter for the police at all. Police? Yes, I'll know more about it as soon as Dr. Melton gets here. Which, uh, incidentally, ought to be any minute now. But, but Ellery, Nikki, you... would you clear away all this truck? Of course, if you want to sit down and on it, I'll be very glad to have you make notes. Ellery Queen. Exactly what little boy were you talking about? Hmm? Bobby Hayes. Bobby Hayes, hmm? And the nice woman? Bobby's mother, of course. Frances Hayes. I see. You fiend! Why, why, Nikki, what's the matter? Oh, nothing. Nothing at all. No, don't you dare come near me. I, I don't seem to follow this at all. Oh, oh, of course. You don't know a thing about this case, do you? And here I've been talking as if you knew all about it. <laughs> yes. Ha, ha, ha. Well, you just sit right down here by the fire, and I'll tell you the whole story. That is, if you'd like to hear it, Nikki. Oh, I'm simply fascinated. <laughs> well, well, to begin with, I first got to know about it when Dr. Melton phoned me. And he got the story from the principals. His landlady, Sarah Brink, a spinster, who owns a small apartment house in Greenwich Village. And Sarah Brink's unfortunate sister, Frances. Frances Hayes. Mrs. Hayes and her little boy, Bobby, who's eight, live with Sarah Brink. I, uh, I think it was four nights ago that it began.
dear. Can't you say yes, Auntie? What is it? Bobby? Bobby Brink. My name is not Bobby Brink. Well, it is in this house. It is not, Aunt Sarah. It's Bobby Hayes. Bobby, how dare you take that tone with me? It is so, Hayes. That's my father's name. That's Mommy's name. So it's my name, too. I know my own name, I guess. Your father's a bad man, Bobby. He ran away. Left you and your mother alone. He did not. Mommy says he's dead. Well, it'd be a mercy if he were. At least you and your mother'd have his insurance. Insurance? What's that, Aunt Sarah? Never you mind. Bobby. Bobby, put the funnies down for a minute. Do I have to? Uh, Bobby, dear, don't you feel just a little bit grateful to Aunt Sarah? Huh? When Auntie takes her sister into her home and her sister's little boy gives them nice soft beds to sleep in and good things to eat, even money to spend. Don't you think the little boy ought to sort of, uh, well... Love his auntie? Oh, I don't get so much money to spend. Ah, you're a wicked, ungrateful boy. What have you been up to in here while I've been making supper in the kitchen? Answer me, Bobby. Some mischief, I'll bet. I'm not doing nothing. I'm just reading the funnies. Chasing the cat, most likely. I was not. I've been reading the radio page. Oh, you miss all those nice programs since your mother's radio got broken accidentally. Don't you, Bobby, dear? Aunt Cheryl, couldn't we have it fixed? I gotta ask the fellas all the time what's happening to Superman. Fix it? Now, Bobby, listen to me. How would you like Aunt Sarah to buy you a nice new radio? Maybe a television set. Just for you. Gee, Aunt Sarah, would you? Why? Well, maybe. If you gave me a real big kiss once in a while, Bobby. Who's there? Francis, is that you? Yes, Sarah. Oh, Bobby, Hi, Mama. Wow. <laughs> Superman, that's <Ooh>. some hug. <laughs> ah, darling, what did you do today, huh? Oh, something wrong, Sarah? Yes, he was a bad boy, Francis, as usual. I declare I don't see why Hi, you don't... Why, you're always snitching. Bobby. Mom, I played with the fellas in the park and a cop chased us just because we were climbing an old tree. Well, you might have fallen, dear. And that's not all. Yeah, yeah. Snitch some more, Aunt Sarah. I threw a rock, Mom. Oh, Bobby, you did. I just a little hunk of rock. Couldn't have hurt nobody. And it just happened to break a window. There, Francis. Are you satisfied now? Oh, that was wrong, Bobby. And I've told you so many times, you mustn't talk to your Aunt Sarah this way. <laughs> If you'd stay home and take care of your child, Francis, instead of prancing round all day... I wasn't prancing, Sarah. I was walking my legs off looking for a job. Oh, you and your jobs. Your first duties to your child. You know you don't have to have a job, Francis, as long as you live with me. Yes, Sarah. I know. Coming home at all hours. Supper's ruined. It is. It is my stew. It's burning. Oh. Just in time. I don't want your old stew. I don't like stew. Bobby, why, Bobby, you're not having stew. What would you say to a nice raspberry jelly omelette? Jelly omelette? Wow. Well, just as soon as I set these two plates of stew down, I'll fix your omelette, Bobby. Francis, hurry, will you? <gasps> For pity's sake, Bobby, now you stop playing with that canary's cage. Oh, Bobby, didn't hear what Aunt Sarah said. Now stop it. Oh, okay, Mom. And can I have prune juice too, Aunt Sarah? Why, certainly you may, Bobby dear. 
Bobby Briggs, now see what you've gone and done. Leaving the canary's cage open. Oh, Bobby, there goes the canary. Sarah, catch it. Oh, of all the spoiled, misbehaving brats. If, if we could only... There he is, Francis. Catch him. Oh, catch I've him. got him. No. Oh, dear. Oh. Now he's flown up on the chandelier. Oh, Bobby. Come I could... down here. Dretch your Sarah, dog. shut the dining room door. He'll fly out. Shut the door, Francis. Yes, Sarah. Look out, the cat. Columbus. Columbus. Stop that, you bad cat. Sarah. Sarah. Oh, I think I could... Got him! Well, it's about time. You naughty canary. Back you go. <sighs> there. Are you... Are you quite finished, Francis? Well, now, Bobby Brink, suppose you tell me why you opened that canary's cage and why you've been sitting at the supper table and haven't so much as lifted a finger to help catch him. I don't care. I was just playing with the old bird. He flew past me, the dirty old bird. Bobby Hayes, what's come over you? Bobby, come here. What? Son, you've always been so kind to Aunt Sarah's pets. But now you chase Columbus, torment the canary, go fishing in the goldfish bowl. Do you like tormenting animals and birds and fish? Oh, Mom, I didn't hurt him. Well, I suppose that lets him off. Kindness, reasonableness. Trouble is, Francis, you don't discipline him. If he were mine, But he I'd... isn't, Sarah. Some will talk about this after supper. Yes, ma'am. Well, eat your stew, Francis. Yes, sir. I suppose I might as well eat mine, too, even if it is icy cold by now. Well... Well, what's the matter, Francis? Isn't my stew good enough for you? Bobby's omelette, Sarah. You've forgotten. Oh, have I? Bobby, I'll make it for Sit you. Sit down. Sarah, please. I've told you a thousand times, Francis. I won't have you or anybody else messing in my kitchen. Bobby will wait for his supper, since he's spoiled ours. Well, Sarah, the stew can be reheated. As if my gas bills aren't high enough as it is. He'll wait. Bobby, I won't eat oh, until... Oh, go ahead, Mom. I can wait. I'm not hungry anyway. Thank you, son. Every time we sit down to eat, that awful fiddling starts. I declare that foreigner does it on purpose just to annoy me. That's only Mr. Weber downstairs, Aunt Sarah. He likes to play that song. Bobby. Oh, I, I must have been insane when I rented that apartment to him. Fiddler playing. I'll have him evicted. That's what I'll do. I'll have him thrown right out into the street. Him and his nasty fiddle. Well, don't stop there, Ellery. What happened then? Then, Nicky, they finished their supper. Sarah Brink made Bobby a jelly omelet, which he devoured with great relish, while his mother began to clear the table. Bobby, uh, the stew is delicious, Sarah. Bobby, you may leave the table. But, Mommy, why can't I have a piece of apple pie? I'm especially hungry for a piece of apple pie. I've already told you, Bobby. If your mother won't punish you, I will. You're just mean, mean. Oh, I am, am I? Bobby, please, I told you to leave the table. Oh, okay. Mom, may 
see Mr. Gordini, I promise. You certainly may not. Sarah, aren't you forgetting that I'm Bobby's mother? I've told you and told you, Francis. Letting a young child spend all of his time with that, that worthless, greasy actor. He's as nice as anyone you know, Sarah. Bobby, you may visit Mr. Gordini for a half an hour, then come upstairs to bed. Gee, thanks, Mom. Bobby, wait. Bobby, I forbid you. I forbid you. Do you understand? You are not to go downstairs. And Francis, just as long as you live in my home on my money, you'll do as I say. Is that clear? I can't stand this anymore. Oh, it's throwing up to me how dependent I am on your charity. Trying to run my life and my child. Because we have no other place to live. So I'm going to leave. I'd rather stop. Oh, stop that silly crying, Francis. If you'd listened to me, you wouldn't have been deserted by that no-good husband of yours and left penniless to support a child. I was good enough to take you in, and I'm good enough to dictate what's best for you. No, I'll take Bobby and get out of well, here. Well, if you want to live in the street, I suppose you're of age, but you're supposed to love this child. What are you going to feed him on? Kisses? Mom? Mom? I, I don't want to see Mr. Gordini. It's okay, I... I'll go right to bed, Mommy. It's all right, Bobby. You may go downstairs. Please, Bobby. Go on now, dear. No. He's staying here. Bobby Brink, if you set foot outside this apartment, I... Oh, Sarah. Oh, I Francis, I... I feel so funny. Sarah, what's the matter? I... Mommy, I'm Sarah. fell down. Sarah, my... My throat. Stomach. On fire. Bobby, run downstairs for Dr. Melton. Quick! Attempted poisoning. I'm afraid so, Nikki. Curious case. Not that I condone it, but it seems understandable. What an old bat. She owns the house, huh? Yes, one of those old three-story brownstones facing Washington Square Park. She's converted it into a four-family apartment house. The Brinks apartment's on the top floor... Dr. Melton lives on the ground floor. And the intermediate floor is occupied by two tenants. Weber, a refugee who teaches the violin. And Gordini, who seems to be an actor. But, Ellery, they can't possibly have anything to do with it. Ah, that's Dr. Melton. I'll go. Yes? I'm Dr. Melton, and this is Miss Sarah Brink. Come in, Doctor. Dr. Melton and Miss Sarah Brink, Ellery. Well, uh, how do you do? Evening. Miss Brink's the patient I phoned to you about, Mr. Queen. Easy now, Miss Brink, please. Here's a chair. Thank you. Sit down, Dr. Melton. Oh, this is my secretary, Miss Porter. How do you do, Miss Porter? How do you do? I must say, I'm a little surprised, Doctor, to see Miss Brink with you. She's still pretty shaky, but I thought we'd risk it, Mr. Queen, even though it's only four days since... The accident. The accident. Now, don't excite yourself, please. I told you, Dr. Melton, it was some sort of accident. Oh, I don't know why I've let you bring me here. A detective. Miss Brink... It couldn't have been an accident. Oh, dear. What do you suspect, Doctor? I don't suspect. I know. Miss Brink was poisoned. By accident. You're asserting that not as a theory, Doctor, but as a fact. Judge for yourself. I know you've had some experience with these things, Mr. Queen. Yes? Miss Brink ate on an empty stomach. About ten minutes later, she fell writhing to the floor. Symptoms? Burning pain in throat and stomach. Intense thirst. Collapse. Cyanosed skin. Difficult respiration, cramps in the calves of the legs. Arsenical poisoning. Yes. How awful. I suppose you had the remains of Miss Brink's portion of stew analyzed, Dr. Melton. Of course. It was heavily dosed with arsenic. Miss Brink, who are your heirs? My 
My heirs? Yes. Well, my sister Frances, she's my only living relative. Your sister and her little boy, you mean? He's your nephew, isn't he, Miss Brink? Yes. Comfortably fixed, are you? Well, I... I own my own house, have a few thousand dollars. Any domestic help? I... I do my own housework and cooking. Can't afford servants. Hmm, I see. Uh, Dr. Melton. Yes, Mr. Queen. I believe you said Mrs. Hayes, Miss Brink's sister, ate stew that evening and showed no ill effects. None at all. Obviously, then. Only the stew on your plate, Miss Brink, was poisoned. Was your sister in the kitchen at any time during the preparation or cooking of the stew? Why, Francis was away all day. She didn't get back till a few minutes before I fetched the two plates of stew from the kitchen and set them on the dining room table. Was your nephew in the kitchen while you were cooking? Bobby? Yes. Oh, no. No, not at any time. And after you set the plates down on the dining room table, Miss Brink, did your sister have an opportunity to drop arsenic into your plate? I tell you, it was an accident. Did she? No, no. Just as I set the plates down, Bobby let the canary escape, and Francis and I began to chase it. I know that, Miss Brink. I just wanted to be sure. Uh, by the way, what was your nephew doing while you and Mrs... Hayes were chasing the canary. Bobby, why... Why, uh, Bobby was seated at the table. Alone, alone and unobserved. No, I mean, uh, yes, yes, he was, oh, but... Miss Brink, Miss oh, Brink, please, gee, please. That is horrid, Ellery. Facts very often are, Nicky. Dr. Milton, take me home. Miss Brink, you can't let this drop. I won't have another word said about the entire matter, understand? You may have no choice, Miss Brink. This is attempted murder. It's not. It's not. Anyway, if you interfere, Mr. Queen, I, I'll deny everything. Yes. And you needn't try to send me a bill. I I won't pay it. Brr. Well, Mr. Queen, I, I didn't realize who was involved. I mean, I think you ought to know, though, that she's concealing her real financial status. She owns half a dozen buildings in Greenwich Village. And she's one of the wealthiest women in the neighborhood. I'm sure of that, Dr. Melton. Well, I'd, I'd better get her back home. She's still pretty weak, you know. And at her age, it, it was a narrow escape. I'm sorry. It's all right, Doctor. Goodbye. 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 Ellery, isn't there something you can do? Well, if she denies the story and refuses to press charges, Nicky, I'm afraid not. But I just can't believe it. it it's frightening. An eight-year-old boy, Ellery. Yes. Apparently, the boy released the canary deliberately to lure his mother and aunt away from the table so that he could poison his aunt's stew unobserved. I don't care how much of an old witch Sarah Brink is. To do a thing like that, a boy of eight, he must be a fiend, Ellery. Psychopathic case. Well, something ought to be done about it. The woman's in danger. That's quite true, Nicky. Unsuccessful poisoners usually repeat. Nicky, what uh, what kind of stew did Sarah Brink say she cooked that night? Kind of stew? Yes. I don't know, Ellery. I don't think she said. No, careless of me. I should have asked her. Well, about all we can do, Nicky, is to try to interest some social service agency and hope for the best. Hand me the phone, will you? it wasn't to be. Everything was closed for the New Year's weekend. And then, it was just yesterday afternoon. Ellery Queen's residence. Naturally. 
Hello, Nicky. Oh, Inspector Queen. Nicky, put Ellery on. Right. Ellery? Yes? Your father. Oh. Yes, Dad. Son, you'd never forgive me if I didn't let you in on this. In on what, Dad? Cockeyedest case I ever saw. Can you get down here in 15 minutes? I'll try and hold him. Hold him? Hold whom? Witnesses to the crime. About three dozen of them. Three dozen what? Fact. If you don't hurry, there'll probably be 300 of them. Dad, I don't see what... Washington Square North. Make it snappy, Harry. 36B Washington Square North. What are you mumbling about, Ellery? What did the inspector want? Nikki. Nikki, that's the address of Dr. Milton's poison case. Sarah Brink? Yes. And Dad says there's been another crime. Come on. Three dozen witnesses. And Inspector Queen, usually the coolest cop between the Battery and the Bronx, is in a state of considerable excitement. We'll meet the witnesses and Queen the Elder in Act Two, along with Sergeant Veely and a quorum of suspects. Theater, The Adventure of the Bad Boy, Act Two. Our intermission turned out to be just long enough for Ellery Queen and Nikki to hail a cab, hop into same, and head for 36B Washington Square North, the scene of the crime. We pick them up as they swing around the lower Fifth Avenue corner of Washington Square. Hop it, Nikki. Come on. Gentlemen, wait for ladies. Excuse me, please. Mind letting us through? Oh, you might carry me. Pardon me. Officer. Huh? Hello, Mr. Green. Here, one side, you people. Stand back there. Stand back. Here. You still with me, Nikki? Not your fault if I am. Hillary, you don't think there's been another... I'm trying not to. Uh, come in, my sir. Come in. Oh, Billy, it's about time. Well, you all set for a little surprise? What's happened here, Sergeant Beale? Uh-huh. Right this way, folks. Inspector's waiting for you. Beale, what's all the mystery about? I got my orders, Maestro, you'll say. A surprise, you said, Sergeant? I'll say it's a surprise. One more flight. Huh. The Brink apartment. That is correct. Hey, you know the old dame, Maestro? Is that Billy? Yes, sir. Dad. Hello, Nicky. Hello, Inspector. Wait till you see this, son. You won't believe it. Try me. Inspector? This way, please. This is the upper hall, Ellery. Doors off here all lead to various rooms of the apartment. It occupies the whole floor. Here we are. You men ready? Yeah. Really? Flint? Yes, yes. Take it, Hagstrom. Yes, sir. We do a repeat, huh? Oh, look, Inspector Queen, we don't have to go through all that You'd again. think once a day enough, Flint. Yeah. I'm not mad. They are, all of them. Dad, will you please... It's a joke, isn't it, Inspector? Some joke. All right, boys. Take your positions just outside the door. Henry, this is exactly what we found when we got here and opened this door. Yes? Open it, Bailey. I remember, fellas, this is all for dear old NYU. Two, fourteen, eighty-nine. Hep! There's one getting away. That one, you fine. Come here, you little devil. Rabbits! Rabbits? Yes, rabbits. Herds of them. 
Spent half an hour chasing through the house trying to recapture that dead blasted bunnies. They all came out of this bedroom, Harry. Whose room is it, Dad? A woman named Sarah Brink. Owner of this house. Sarah Brink? No, Nikki. Stay in the hall. Yep, son. That's just what we found when the rabbit scooted past us. What? Sarah Brink, Nikki. Dead. appearance of these bedclothes, Doc, looks like there was a struggle. Sure there was a struggle, Inspector, with old man Death. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, you'd struggle too if you died of what she did. Now, let's see. Well, what was it, you cadaver mechanic? No, no, Dick, your blood pressure... Silas, is a fine time for a fiddle to be scratching. Yeah, who's that? Some fiddle teacher that lives downstairs named a Weber. Well? Well, Freddy? It's no use, Inspector. The family lunched on rabbit stew today, hmm? Yes, and right after lunch, the old girl came in here to lie down for a nap. Had some vittles in her stomach, I'll bet, before she ate that stew... Otherwise, you'd have passed out a table. Well, gentlemen, it's arsenical poisoning. Ah. Well, if it ain't the maestro. I was beginning to think we weren't speaking, Ellery. Yes, sir. Arsenical poisoning. You're positive, Dr. Prouty? Sunken features, cyanose skin, irritation of eyelids, and skin eruption. There can't possibly be a mistake. Doubt, my boy, is the deity of science. But in this case, I'd stake my professional reputation it was arsenious oxide. White arsenic. Better do an autopsy right away, Prouty. Make sure. Naturally. Runch's test will do the trick. Yeah, she'd have been luckier if she'd been born a rabbit. Arsenic won't kill them. They're immune. Okay, call the wagon. On the way, Doc. And uh, here's your removal order. What's this? That's what, son? This top hat on Sarah Brink's night table, Dad. Ah, oh, you spotted it, Ellery. What was she, a male impersonator? Uh, interesting, huh, Maestro? Well, I'll be. Observe, I have nothing up my sleeve. I insert my right hand in the hat, hocus-pocus, open sesame till Erlenspiegel, presto, a rabbit. Very interesting, <laughs> So what? Ah, uh, merely one bunny too scared to run away when you boys opened the door, Sergeant. Took refuge in this soap tupper. Hmm. Top hat and rabbits. <laughs> the murder must have been committed by a magician. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> What'd I tell you, Vili? Maestro, you throw me. You throw me. Walk over that buck. Oh, here, Inspector. <laughs> Didn't I tell you to say that, Vili? I bet you framed oh, it. Oh, but, Dad, I wasn't serious. Well, I am. She was poisoned by a magician, all right. I've got him in the living room right now, under you, arrest. You mean there's actually a magician mixed up in this? Oh, of course. The actor. Uh-huh. Lives downstairs across the hall from Weber, the violin teacher. The vaudeville magician, maestro. Calls himself Gordini the Great. Hmm. I want to see him. Flint. Yeah, Inspector. 
Gardini been acting up? Nah, gentle as a rabbit. I don't mean to tell you how to run your business, Inspector, but believe me, I didn't poison Sarah Brink. I know, Gordini. You're just a victim of a plot. This is my son, Ellery. He wants to talk to you. Mr. Gordini, I'm very much interested in Sarah Brink's death. I'm told you were home today in your apartment around noon when she was poisoned. That's right, Mr. Queen. I'm temporarily at liberty. You could have used your time to better advantage, man. Just a moment, Sergeant. I'm told, too, Mr. Gordini, that the fire escape makes it possible for you to have been just outside Sarah Brink's kitchen window while the two plates of rabbit stew, which Miss Brink and her sister Mrs. Hayes ate for lunch today, stood on the serving cabinet near the kitchen window. Yes, Mr. Queen, but the kitchen window has an iron grill which can only be opened from inside. All the windows at the back of this house have. How am I supposed to have got past those bars? With this thingamajig, Gordini. Uh, where'd you get my lazy tongs? Is that a lazy tongs? And... What are they, Inspector? It's like a pair of scissors, Vitty. Opens and shoots out in crisscrossing slats. Like this. Hush, you... You missed my schnoz by half an inch. Well, I missed, didn't I? Be careful. You got the idea, Henry? Yes. This is part of Gardini's magic equipment. Comes from his stuff downstairs. Gardini, you stood on the fire escape outside the Brink kitchen window and dropped arsenic into Sarah's plate of stew from the end of these tongs through the grill. What can I do but deny it? It's not true. And the top hat. It has pockets inside, Gordini. A regular magician's hat. You admit it's yours? Of course it's mine. If you're innocent, how did it get into the Brink woman's bedroom? Uh, I don't know. Dead. Hold it, son. Gordini, I've had you checked this afternoon. Your real handle's Gordon, Algernon Gordon. And you were a chemist before you became a stage magician. Then you'd know all about arsenic. Wouldn't you, Mr. Gordon Gordini? I see I'm to be convicted on coincidence. It's no coincidence that you've been quarreling with the murdered woman, Gordini. The whole neighborhood knows about it. Quarreling about what? Well, it seems the old lady told him to keep away from her sister Frances and the kid Bobby. Oh, well, that's pretty circumstantial, Dad. Is it? And bat this around, Ellery. I've got a witness who lives in a McDougal Alley house opposite the back windows here. My witness says she saw Gordini standing on the fire escape outside Sarah Brink's kitchen window at just about the time that rabbit stew must have been poisoned. Is that true, Gordini? Yes, Mr. Queen. I was there, but I was, well, snoofing. Why? I'd, I'd rather not say. Pretty lame, Gordini. That's the best you can do. Dad, there's one fact you've overlooked that punches a pretty big hole in your Gordini theory. What's that, son? Frances Hayes had stew for lunch today, too, didn't she? Yes. She wasn't poisoned, was she? No. But both plates of stew, you say, the one which Sarah ate and the one which Frances ate were on a serving cabinet near the kitchen window, accessible to Gordini on the fire escape through the lazy tongs. How could Gordini have known which plate was Sarah's? Yes, how could I have known? Maestro's got something there, Inspector. Yes. As for Gordini's top hat being in Sarah's bedroom, Bobby Hayes told me he brought it there this morning. Yes, yes, I'd forgotten that. That's quite possible. Bobby often plays with my paraphernalia. Furthermore, the rabbits aren't Gordini's. They were Sarah Brink's. She sometimes fed them in her room. I think that pretty well explodes the circumstantial case against Gordini. Thank you, Mr. Queen. But I'm not through with you, Gordini. What's that? You're obviously concealing something. What is it? I don't know what you mean. Gordini, I think you know who poisoned Sarah Brink. Do you? You do, don't you? No talky. See if you can make Gordini change his mind, Dad. Where are you going? Oh... Snoop around.
horrible what happened in this house. I knew it. I knew it. Oh, Mommy! Mommy! <laughs> Please, Mrs. Hayes, you've got to control yourself. Yes. Bobby, son, it's all right. And don't be frightened, baby. Aunt Sarah's just gone away, Bobby. Oh, she's dead, Mom. Bobby. Who's that? It's probably an officer. Come in. Oh, Nikki. Ellery. Well? Glad you're with Mrs. Hayes, Nikki. Hi, Bobby. Hi. Miss Porter's been a great help, Mr. Queen. You are a real detective? <laughs> well, sometimes I wonder, Bobby. Mrs. Hayes, all the pets in this house, canary, cat, goldfish, they were your sister Sarah's, weren't they? And the rabbits, too, Mr. Queen. Oh, yes, the rabbits. I assume she didn't quarter them in her bedroom permanently. Where did she usually keep them, Mrs. Hayes? In the backyard. In a real rabbit hutch. That's so, Bobby? Yeah. Sarah. Mrs. Hayes, who fed them? Sarah wouldn't let anyone else take care of You remembered something, Mrs. Hayes? Yes. Sarah had an argument last week with Mr. Webber. She caught him feeding her rabbits in the yard. Boy, did she tell him off. Webber. Must be Webber playing the violin now. Excuse me. Sergeant. Yeah, Maestro? Have Webber brought up, will you? Now, that's constructive. Anything to stop that fiddle. Oh, Mrs. Hayes, you had rabbit stew rather often, didn't you? At least once a week. Sarah is... was very fond of it. She killed her own rabbits. They were multiplying so rapidly. I don't like rabbit stew. Yeah, Mom doesn't either. She only ate it because Aunt Sarah made her. Bobby, just after your sister brought the plates of stew into the dining room for lunch today, Mrs. Hayes, did, uh... did anything unusual happen? Unusual? Well, I, I don't think I... Well, like, uh... Like the escape of the canary last week. Well, you mustn't think Bobby's a bad boy, Mr. Queen. He's just mischievous, like most boys of his age, and he didn't then mean to do anything. something did happen at lunch today. Ah, oh, you can tell him, Mom? I pushed over the fishbowl. Oh, Ellery. Sorry, Nikki. And while your mother and aunt were rescuing the goldfish, Bobby, what were you doing? Sitting at the table. Aunt Sarah was yelling at me. She said, just with that, I couldn't have chocolate cream pie. I'm glad she's dead, old yellow. Bobby, Bobby, you mustn't talk that way about... Yeah, oh. come on. Well, Inspector, Sergeant. Dr. Melton and Herr Weber. What's this now, Henry? Oh, we've just been chewing the fat in here, Dad. Mr. Weber, you're the violinist we've been hearing all afternoon? Yeah. Mrs. Hayes, I'm terribly sorry about your schwester, Miss Brink. I hear what happens. And... If you're sorry, why have you been playing your violin? And my sister lying dead up here. Ah, but this is doch, how do you say, sad music, Mrs. Hayes. I have sad feelings. I play sad music. What I am from where I come, it is all sad. Everything. Everyone. Even here, I, I cannot forget. Mr. Weber, I understand you fed Sarah Brink's rabbits last week. Yeah, yeah, mid lettuce. Hmm. And she was very angry with you. And so? I sit in the backyard thinking of Köln, Stuttgart. Zwickau, I play my violin. I lay it on the bench, I feed the bunnies. Miss Brink, she comes out, she takes my violin, she breaks it in little pieces. She is like a crazy woman. That is my good violin. The other, the one I play now on, that is not so good. Well, Sarah had a, a vile temper. I'm sorry, Mr. Weber, I, I didn't know about that. Natürlich. <laughs> I want she shall pay for my instrument. I am poor. But she says no. 
I should move. Also, I move. Tomorrow. Herr Dr. Melton, he's moving also. Oh, really? That right, Dr. Melton? Yes, as soon as I can find new quarters in this neighborhood. Why are you moving, Doctor? Well, my patients are all pretty poor, Mr. Queen. They don't pay very well. I've been behind in my rent. The other day, Miss Brink said she wouldn't wait any longer, that, well, I'd have to get out. Dr. Melton, I didn't know that either. I know, Mrs. Hayes. I suppose I own this house now. Well, you don't have to move. You've been here so long, Doctor. Why, that's... That's very decent of you, Mrs. Hayes. And you too, Mr. Weber. You stay on. And as soon as I can, I'll pay for your broken violin. Dankeschön. Dankeschön, Gnädige Frau. Blast it. What, Dan? Ah, oh, this racket is one part luck and 99 parts waiting. Reports, reports. Where are they? Why, oh. Inspector, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Kicking that cat. Here, puss, don't let the nasty old man hurt your feelings. Cats, goldfish, canaries, rabbits, regular zoo. Don't look at me that way, Nicky. I didn't kick the confounded beast. I didn't know he was there. There, he's apologized, puss. He's a nice, nasty old man. Harry, what's the answer to this blasted riddle? If Gordini didn't poison the stew... I've got a notion, Dad. Just the vaguest notion. Oh, the great man has a notion. Imagine that, puss. Suppose it'll ever grow up to be a great big idea. Hey, who swiped my gun? What, Vinny? My gun, Inspector, my rod. Somebody lifts it right out of my holster. Was it one of you? Come on. Was it? <laughs> Why, Sergeant, I'm ashamed of you. You better find it, Bailey, before it turns up on the scene of a crime. Victor, wasn't one of you? No. I'll never hear the end of this. <laughs> That's the funniest thing. <laughs> Where's my handkerchief? That's funny. I'm sure it was in my bag. Your handkerchief missing, Nicky? No, Ellery, my compact. Why, it isn't here. What's this now? You'd better take a look at yourself, son. Oh. My fountain pen. It's gone. It... Hey! My snuff box! What? Inspector. Oh, Flint, what is it? Well, Doc Prouty just phoned from the morgue. He said something about submucous hemorrhages showing up in the PM or something. Anyway, the old dame died of arsenic poisoning, he says. Well, that's progress. Flint, we knew that. Oh. Well, uh, there's a report from the city toxicologist, too. You know that white stuff looked like flour we scraped up from the floor of the rabbit hutch? Dad, you found a white powder in the backyard rabbit hutch? Sure, son, before you got here. So what, Flint? Well, the toxicologist says that's arsenic, too. Arsenic in the rabbit hutch? Why didn't someone tell me? Hey, hey, Inspector! Huh? Oh, it's you again. Hey, I found my gun. You did, Sergeant? Where? On the downstairs hall table. My gun and your snuff box, by the way. Oh, yeah. Give me that. Uh-huh. Thanks. You didn't find a compact by any chance, Sergeant. I sure did. Is this yours, Miss Porter? Well, thank you. And don't tell me, Maestro, this fountain pen is yours. Yes, yes, Sergeant. Thanks. They were all on the downstairs hall table, huh? Huh? Something awful funny around here. Someone swiped something from each one of us. Leaves them in plain sight to be found. A thief who returns his loot. But if he didn't want the stuff, why in time did he steal it in the first place? That's it. What did he say? Huh? What, Ellery? 
The key to the whole case. Ellery, you mean the one who stole... Yes, Nikki. The key to the whole case. The key to the whole case. Somewhere around this point, I believe, it used to be novelist Queen's practice to challenge the reader to name the culprit with all the pertinent facts at his disposal. My guess always goes wrong. And in this case, I suspect so is yours. Act three will, uh, shall we say, uh, let the cat out of the bag or uh, the rabbit out of the hat. previous act ended, you will recall, Ellery Queen had just discovered the key to the whole case, to which, as our curtain rises once more, Nikki makes reply. You know, Ellery, you're the most exasperating man alive. You mislead people. Me, for instance. What, Nikki? Oh, I know you're not listening. You never do. You make people think things, then it turns out to be something entirely different. The inspector can't help himself. After all, he's your father. But someday I'm... What's this? What? This, Nikki. Oh, why do I always fall for it? An old closet. Key to the whole case. What key? No answer. The great man wraps himself in mystery. Hush, hush. Top secret. Ellery, will you come out of that closet and listen? You come into this closet and listen. Huh? Hear it, Nikki? It sounds hollow. Something funny about that wall. This is Bobby's bedroom. Look. A sliding panel. It's sort of medieval, isn't it, Ellery? No, Nikki. Simply eight-year-old boy. Bobby's sawn through the back wall of his closet. Let's see what's behind this panel. Secret passages yet. Here, give me that flash, Nikki. Flight of wooden stairs going Let's see where out. it goes. Ellery, you wretch, you've got the flash. Here, Nikki. Watch your step. Ellery, doesn't that violin of Weber sound louder? Uh-huh. This passage apparently acts as an amplifier. Hmm. Huh. where it leads. A door. It's just an old attic. Uh-huh. Oh, Bobby couldn't have built these stairs. Hardly. It's an old house, Nicky. Part of the original. The stairs were probably boarded up during some renovation, and Bobby's rediscovered them. Ah, what's that? Ellery, if you leave me here in the dark, I... Come here, Nicky. Look at this sign. Sign? Robert Hayes, magician. Bobby's handiwork. Ah, what's this box? An awful mess in there. Yes. Cards, handcuffs, trick coins, wand, handkerchiefs, ropes, huh. collapsible knife. The usual magician's truck. Ah. Oh, don't try to impress me. What's in that packet? Magic Humpties? I'm afraid, Nikki, it's a more deadly magic than that. A more deadly. A white powder, Nikki. White powder? Arsenic. I can't believe it. I just can't. Too revolting, Ellery. 
I wonder why Gordini didn't tell the truth. He knew all the time. Unless... Ellery, a boy. A boy of eight. Well, let's go downstairs, Nikki, and get it over with. Can you know? I've seen everything you have. I've got all the facts. They don't add up to a thing. Bad mathematics, Dad. Unless this kid, this Bobby Hayes... The cat. Oh, nuts. I'm in the wrong rocket. Ellery, please do it quickly. His poor mother is so upset now. All right, all right, let's go. We'll all be bawling in a minute. Quiet, please. Go ahead, Ellery. Just a moment, please. Bobby... Bobby, dear. Hey, Mom, what are they going to do now? Why is everybody so quiet? Bobby, I want you to do something for Mother. I want you to go to my bedroom and stay there. Oh, Mom, I want to see. I never saw a real detective get his man. I want to stay. Bobby, please go. Mrs. Hayes. What? Mrs. Hayes, I'd... I'd prefer Bobby to remain here. Remain here? Queen, why don't you let the boy go? This is no place for a child eight years old. Then suppose you tell us, Mr. Gordini, who poisoned Sarah Brink. Tell us, and I'll send Bobby away. No! I don't want to go away. Why won't you tell us, Mr. Gordini? Because I've got no proof. You wouldn't believe me. I see. Gordini, when you were on the fire escape... Bobby, you and Mr. Gordini are great pals, I take it. Bobby, be quiet. Oh, Mom. Sure, Mr. Queen, we're just like that. Bobby's at the age, Gordini, when he's most susceptible to the fascinations of secret passages, sliding panels, and... Magic. Right, Gordini? You've been teaching Bobby magic, haven't you? You ought to see all the tricks Mr. Gordini showed me. Bobby, don't say anything. And when Mr. Gordini showed you all these marvelous magic tricks, Bobby, just what did he tell you? That I had to practice all the time. Practicing is a way you get to be a great magician. And uh, Sergeant Feely's revolver, Bobby. My fountain pen. Inspector Queen's snuffbox. And, oh, uh, Miss Porter's compact. When you took them from us under our noses, Bobby... You were simply practicing, weren't you? Oh, no. oh, Bobby stole things. Oh, Mr. Queen, he couldn't have. He's only a boy. He didn't know what he was doing. I did too, Mom. Only I wasn't stealing them. I left them right in the downstairs hall table, didn't I? That's how I knew it was you, Bobby. I just wanted to see if I could, Mr. Queen. That's not stealing. Bobby. Mommy, I didn't steal. I didn't steal. Hillary, get it over with, will you? And, Bobby, you took that packet of white powder too, didn't you? White powder? And hid it in your attic hideout. Hmm? I... Bobby, don't answer. Let the boy answer, Mrs. Hayes, please. Bobby? Mr. Gordini told me to look for packages of white powder, like flour, he said. To take them and give them to him as soon as the coast was clear. But but that one in the attic, I didn't get the chance, Mr. Gordini. I was going to give it to you, but... Bobby, don't say anymore. Why not, Gordini? What is this, Henry? Bobby, what else did Mr. Gordini tell you to do? Nothing. He didn't tell me nothing. Bobby. Bobby, you can tell me. Because I know. You do? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. You're a detective. Detectives know everything. But I I promise not to tell. Well, then suppose I tell you, Bobby, and then it won't be breaking a promise, will it? Mr. Gordini told you there was something you had to do to save your mother's life. Isn't that right? Gee, how'd you know that? To save my life, Mr. Queen. And Bobby... My life? You had to do that thing every time there was rabbit stew for lunch or supper. 
didn't you? Yes, sir. It was something fierce. I had to watch all the time. I had to save my mother's life. I don't know why, but that's what Mr. Gordini told me. Oh, Bobby, no. And when you couldn't do this certain thing that Mr. Gordini had told you to do, Bobby, when you couldn't do it without your mother and aunt seeing you, you were a very smart boy. You decided to distract their attention. The way magicians do when you don't want them to see their trick. That's right, Bobby, that's right. So last week, you purposely let the canary escape. This afternoon, you purposely upset the fishbowl. But why, son? For the love of Pete, why? A diversion, Dad. Can only have one purpose, to mask an act. When his mother and aunt were chasing that canary last week, while they were saving the goldfish today, Bobby took the two plates of rabbit stew, his mother's and his aunt's, and switched them. Oh, yeah, that's why. That's what you told Bobby to do every time they had rabbit stew, Gordini. To switch the two women's plates. Because you knew, Gordini... You knew the secret of those rabbits. What secretary? What are you talking about, Maestro? Bobby, will you leave the room now, please? Yes, sir. I don't understand either, Ellery. Dr. Prouty said today that rabbits are immune to arsenic. So if you fed rabbits lettuce or carrots, which had been dosed with the poison, it wouldn't hurt them a bit. But their flesh would become permeated with it. Then, if you made a rabbit stew, you'd be arsenically poisoned. Dad, you found arsenic in the rabbit hutch. That proved the animals were being fed the poison while they were still alive. Then they were slaughtered and cooked into a stew. And yet, only one portion of the stew was poisoned. How is that possible? Who could have controlled the preparation of the stew so rigidly that one portion was cooked with poisoned rabbit and the other with unpoisoned rabbit? Only one person. The person who wouldn't let anyone else feed the rabbits. The person who wouldn't let anyone else prepare food in her kitchen. The cook herself. Sarah. My sister Sarah. Yes, Mrs. Hayes, your sister Sarah. She obviously wasn't trying to poison herself or Bobby, who always refused rabbit stew. She could only have been trying to poison you. Oh, Sarah. Sarah. Gordini, you used to be a chemist. You saw Sarah Brink sprinkle a white powder on the rabbit's food in the hutch one day. You scraped some of it up, analyzed it, saw the whole thing in a flash. And to save Mrs. Hayes' life, you got Bobby to switch plates every time the sisters had rabbit stew. And Bobby did so, never realizing the significance of his act. And so you got Sarah Brink to poison herself. But why, Mr. Queen? Why did my sister want to kill me? I have nothing. Oh, you... You underestimate your wealth, Mrs. Hayes. You have a boy, a son, and all your sister's possessions couldn't buy her that. She wanted Bobby. Yes, Nikki. She wanted Bobby. I'm sure that all of you are as happy as I am to learn that Bobby was not the culprit. The first time I heard the play in rehearsal, my money went down on the doctor... But as I said, I'm always wrong about these things. Our performance engaged the talents of three members of the original cast of the Ellery Queen series. Hugh Marlowe, prominent star of the Broadway stage and motion pictures, who created the role of Ellery Queen. Santos Ortega as Inspector Richard Queen, and Ted DeCorsia once more in the part of Sergeant Bealey. Nicky was played by Charlotte Keene. The Adventure of the Bad Boy was written by Ellery Queen. The continuity was by George Faulkner. The original music was composed and conducted by Lynn Murray. Our editor is Howard Teichman, and the entire production was under the direction of George Zachary. 
The other players heard in today's broadcast were Brad Barker, Harold Durenforth, Sarah Fussell, John Gibson, Averill Harris, Jane Houston, Ann Seymour, Walter Vaughn, and Guy Wallace. Ford Theater is presented by the Ford Motor Company, makers of Ford, Mercury, and Lincoln cars, and Ford trucks, tractors, and motor coaches. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. A classic whodunit from Ellery Queen, or rather, from the two guys who called themselves Ellery Queen, from the Ford Theater, the very first week of 1948. It brings us to the end of this fall membership campaign edition of the big broadcast. Once again, thanks to everybody who gave. And that thank you comes from our producers, Jill Arold Bailey and Douglas Bell, our audio engineers, Mike Kidd and Kenny Pirog, and me, Murray Horwitz. And thanks for listening. Have a great week. And please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody. I love to spend each Sunday with you. As friend of friend, I'm sorry it's through. I'm telling you just how I feel. I hope you feel that way too Let's make a date for next Sunday night I'm here to stay T'will be my delight To sing again, bring again The things you want me to I love to spend each Sunday with